People ask me all the time how I think of such dark stories every week. Well, I say, I just take any scenario and think of the worst possible outcome. It's there if you want it, but you have to want it. That's the scary part. We only see what we want to see, and we don't always want a happy ending. Most people take this to mean that we all wear rose-colored glasses, indulging in selectively seeing the good and blocking out the bad. What we want to see is supposed to be great, but that isn't exactly true. Let's do an experiment. Imagine this scenario. You live in a nice, quiet suburb. A wealthy white family of four lives in a large, sprawling home located on a double lot that backs up to the woods in your neighborhood. You don't know these people. You wave to them occasionally, but that's the extent of it. But they have everything. The young boy rides around on an ATV at all times of day, even Saturday morning when you just need a few extra hours of sleep. The older child, a daughter, got a Mercedes for her 17th birthday. Her handbags and shoes are worth more than your whole house. She has waist-length blonde extensions and flawless manicures. She was a child star briefly, modeling for toy companies and doing internet ads for subscription athletic wear. You've heard her boyfriend is in his early 30s and bought a yacht because she likes the way the ocean makes her hair look. Ugh. The father is a silver fox executive type, disarmingly charming and super quick with a compliment. The kind of personal line-blurring compliment that knocks you off your feet. He has a 25-year-old trophy wife because of course he does. And this is his fourth marriage, but who's counting? She also has a Mercedes and waist-length blonde hair extensions. She yells at the housekeeper loudly and walks around the front yard in a bikini searching for the right light to take Instagram photos. Oh yeah, she's Insta-famous. Rumor has it that she was an escort and that she still has a pretty active online following of past clients. She and the daughter despise each other, which is not unexpected. One day, you come home to see police cars and ambulances racing towards that big house. The trophy wife was discovered naked, floating in the pool dead, with the word slut written on her forehead in red Dior lipstick. The kind of lipstick her stepdaughter wore, but she borrowed on a regular basis, much to the girl's consternation. The trophy wife died of a combination of blunt force injury to the head and drowning. So what happened? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? The daughter finally got fed up with her trashy stepmother trying to outshine her in her own home and killed her. The lipstick, the one horrible word on her forehead, the violent way she died. Police find the daughter's fingerprints on a hammer lying in the grass just feet away. There is no blood on it, so authorities believe it has been wiped clean. The lipstick on the woman's forehead still has her stepdaughter's DNA on it. The court of public opinion indicts this girl immediately, and the evidence in real court follows. TikToks of the girl venting about her stepmother, saying that she sometimes fantasizes about killing her, surface. Images are recovered on the stepmother's cell phone of herself moments before she died. In these images, you can see the stepdaughter's white Gucci sunglasses on the ground behind her. The father stalwartly believes it was one of her ex-clients who became mad with rage, but there is no evidence there. He is grasping at straws. The girl is tried and found not guilty. 
by a thread. And with the help of an OJ trial-level lawyer, rich people can do anything, can't they? This was an open and shut case. It's insane that this girl is walking free when her stepmother is dead. She actually got away with murder. It makes you sick. And well, it should. Three years later, a neighbor across the street finds an old security camera on their roof that had broken a few years back while cleaning the gutters. They had never bothered to remove it because it was a massive pain in the ass to get to. They just didn't use it anymore and installed another more convenient one. The camera, though, still had a tape in it, and it was old. Just for fun, they played it, and there, in the corner of the screen, was the wealthy neighbor's backyard. First, the daughter walks through the frame. She is carrying a hammer, a box of nails, and a pretty tasseled garland, the kind you see in Pinteresty bedrooms that are painted millennial pink. We see her answer her phone, get distracted, lay the hammer down in the grass, and then walk away. An hour goes by, and then we see the stepmother walk out onto the patio and take off her robe under which she is naked. There is blurry red writing on her forehead, and she is wearing a large pair of white sunglasses. She sprays the ground next to the pool down with the hose so it is wet and shimmering. And then she poses herself near the edge of the pool to take a series of edgy selfies. Instagram content, it would seem. The sunglasses slip off her face, and she bends over at an awkward angle to pick them up. She slips on the slick ground and scrambles before smacking her forehead on the landscaping rocks. She attempts to regain her footing but cannot manage to do so, and her foot slides over the edge of the pool. She careens backwards, cracking the back of her skull hard on the pool's edge. She hits the water and goes under, and that's it. Two hours later, the sprinkler system turns on to water the ferns that border the pool. It washes away the bits of blood on the rocks and the pool's edge. How could anyone have possibly guessed this? It's insane. What a freak occurrence. The camera, though. The cops did ask about that. They were told it only worked part of the time and was a pain in the ass to get to, so they left it at that. It was, after all, an open and shut case. This spoiled teenager had it coming. But she didn't, did she? The evidence never was actually there. We don't know her or her stepmother. It was just dots connected by preconceived notions. Other people made that story up because that's how they wanted it to end. That's how they thought these people should play out. None of it was true, though. It was all a fantasy a grotesque sort of Rorschach test, a living example of seeing what you want to see, even when it isn't pretty. You saw it, didn't you? Of course you did, because it's right there, if you want it. But you have to want it. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead.
you guys. Mm. It's Jean-Benet Ramsey week. We got here. <laughs> Almost. Yeah. I'm going to be super honest really quick. I don't like this case. I thought I did. I thought it was a big one that was like very publicly advertised. That's the wrong word, but you know what I mean? Like it's it's just wallpapered grocery store checkout mm-hmm. lines forever. And I thought, oh, this will be really great. And then I got into it and I don't like it. Why is that? Um, Because what it is was lost. Yeah. Like it, it isn't a bit, it shouldn't be what, what it has become. It shouldn't be this big public sensation. We have lost all of the meaning of what happened in this like glittery tabloid haze. And when I had to spend a lot of hours looking at this little girl's dead body, it was really hard to reconcile that. Mm, that's so sad. Yeah, it's really sad. Really, really sad. All of it is sad. None of it is glamorous. None of it is like gossipy or fun or not fun is the wrong word, but you know what I mean? It's Mm. not what people have painted it as. It's a dead little kid, which is fucking awful. It's like the top tier of fucking awful. Mm. And I think that was just ignored or has become ignored. And I hate hate talking about it. Well, I guess because we probably romanticize the mystery of it all. For sure. Absolutely. I mean, her face is so recognizable, and the case is like the most famous unsolved crime in America, I think. Right. And there's so much about it that so appeals to so many people's sensibilities. You know, she's Mm -hmm. a beautiful little child. They were affluent white people, and they have all this like weird child pageant scandal and people refer to her as a beauty queen, which is terrible. She's six. I know. That's That's, what they do. It's not a thing. Mm -hmm. It's not a thing. She's a child. No, thank Mm -hmm. you. So it left me with a terrible taste in my mouth through all of my research. Mm -hmm. I fucking hated it. And um, I couldn't, I just couldn't move forward. It was awful. So. Well, I am one of the rare people in our true crime community that knows very little. All I know is just from when I was probably eight or nine and just the tabloid photos of her and remembering first my mom saying like, oh, she's missing. And then like, Mm -hmm. I I think they found her body. And then that was really it. And then I never really looked into anything else. I just know her face and her photos. And I remember being just a little too young knowing like I shouldn't look more into this. Right. And then I just never did. I mean, fair enough, and and probably you're all the better for it. But if I had to ask you, like, right now, no research, like, who do you think did it? I really have no idea. Okay, because yeah. most people have a big opinion. Mm-hmm. I know, yeah. I, I could say, but it would be, it, w- it would honestly be because other people but have But that's said, the answer I want. Okay, so it, it would be family. Okay. And... I guess all the main thing I've just heard is brother, brother, brother. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. See, that's what I want. Mm-hmm. I want that, like, what's your knee-jerk reaction? Mm-hmm. And nine out of ten people are going to say the exact same thing that you just said. And I'm not saying they're wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that I went in hot, confident. I had listened to all the podcasts. I listened to tons of coverage on this. I had read. I had watched documentaries. But it wasn't until I sat down and it was all laid out in front of me that I was like, oh, no. No, nobody can be sure. Mm. And the more sure you think you are, the more you have read an angled version of this story. And you just locked into that and turned off the rest. 
Well, this is why I show up every week, Holly, because I trust you to tell me what I should and shouldn't know. Well, thank you. <laughs> so, um, so I'm sorry that you had to go through this It's this week. all right. I love all of you, and I mm-hmm. did it. And just know that part of this is going to be more of a conversation because I do go into it assuming, and I, I tell you everything. There's, not, there's few things I don't lay out. But I do assume that most of us have at least some kind of basis for this. Like, even what you have as a background is still a background. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm assuming no one is going in, like, totally blind. Like, who's Jean Bonnet? What's that? <laughs> I don't... Is that, like, a candy bar? I don't know. That's not a thing. We're fine. So anyway, uh, I'm going to go through this part quick because I can't be funny this week. I was just taken totally off my game. Uh, yeah, so if you like us, go find us on Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It is the only way to move this podcast forward. If you would like more We Would Be Dead in your life, you can support us over on Patreon, where for just a few dollars a month, you will get extra weekly content in the form of a video show called Host Mortem. Yeah, that's really fun. We do a wrap-up and we talk about things we don't talk about on the podcast. And you get to see our faces, which is a delight. We have our patrons-only podcast, 30-minute horror movies. We just recorded Thanksgiving 3. It's bonkers. Yeah, you wanna you want access to that. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole bunch of other ones. You get a special gift from us, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. And if all of that seems to be a little too much for you, you can simply share anything in our social media feed to your social media feed. We're clever sometimes. It's fun. Yep. You can let us know when you're listening. Tell everybody about your favorite episode. Tell a friend. Tell a neighbor. Tell the person that also speculates about this case with you. That's not giving you anything. Pull a name out. Who could it be? Lisa. Yeah. I see you, Lisa. It's going to be Lisa. We have several Lisas, and they have lots of feelings, so I'm sure they'll tell us all about it. So then your friends and Lisa, she might be your friend already, can become fiends, and we can all hang out together. All right. So I think that's the business. Oh, um, keep your eyes out for our Christmas, uh, not just Christmas, our holiday Campfire Stories, which is live online, so not in person, Mm -hmm. but online. That's on December 17th. I'm pretty sure we're going to have John with us again. It's going to be really fun. We will do a patrons-only green room beforehand. So, and I'm going to try and find a, like, thematic holiday cocktail that we can all mix up together and a mocktail because if you don't like cocktails, you should have an option too. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then it can be a, it's going to be a fun party. Pretty excited. Put your Christmas outfit on. We're going to. Yep. (laughs) It'll probably be the first time we broadcast from my new house. That's going to be fun. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah, so tune in for that. And, uh, I and think, you get to see the new puppy. Oh, that's right. You guys will get to see Zero. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've seen many pictures, I'm sure. <laughs> I have posted some. He's like, he's so cute, he's almost not real. Yeah, he's just a little floof ball. Mm-hmm. He's the best. He's the best. You're going to love him. So I think that's all I have. Leslie, do you have anything before we begin? You know, Holly, I think long and hard every week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and um, mm-hmm. I just have nothing. Good. To say this week. Great. There's not a whole lot to say this no. week. <laughs> All right, then. On with the show. So, Jean Benet. Boy, I bet we all have immediate, like, sense memories of the checkout line at our area supermarket right now. Mm-hmm. Right? That's every time. Yep. That's it. It's still there. Mm-hmm. You can still find them. They still talk about her, which is nuts. JonBenet Ramsey's face is among the most famous 
images in at least the United States, if not the world. And yet nobody really knows what she was like. And I know some people will say, well, she was a little kid. There's not much. I mean, what could you know? But six-year-olds have a personality. They're all weird and different and interesting and inquisitive and sometimes exhausting, but they are little people. All we get for a description is usually the generic, she was beautiful, or she was a lovely child, or she was so kind. And sometimes true crime shows will dig out the old chestnut. She lit up the room, and I can just tell she was a really cool little kid. Can you? People who do this kind of blanket victim canonization drive me crazy, by the way, because that's not enough. This was a whole little person with kid thoughts and dreams and questions to be asked. And where is any of that information? Where is Jean Benet in the Jean Benet Ramsey case? Nowhere. Really, anymore at least. Mm. As we see happen so often, the person has become lost in the crime. Now, I have a blonde-haired, blue-eyed little girl. She's 10 now, but I remember when she was six. And to get me into what I felt was an appropriate state to write this episode, I sat down and I described her when she was six years old. I just wrote about what Violet was like when she was six. I went through all my pictures of her sixth year. I looked at kindergarten and part of first grade. I looked at our trip to Disney World. What was having a little girl that age like? She loved Disney Descendants and Monster High. This is my daughter. She was learning to read Judy B. Jones books. She sang loudly and loved dropping big words into conversations that other six-year-olds might not know. She cried really hard when a woman did not get to be president, so hard that I had to buy her, buy her a kitten just to lessen the blow. True story. She lost her first tooth and watched the movie Coraline 100 times a day. Not a day, just in general. <laughs> There's not that many hours. She was full of energy and daydreams and curiosity, but also very sensitive. One time she ate cat food because she wanted to know what it was like to be her kitten. <laughs> she did. I remember that. Yep. She, her best friend, and their little brothers painted her treehouse a million different colors one day when I wasn't looking. She is creative and optimistic and good at imagining things you might not ever expect and seeing things from an angle you may not see them from. That's what drew other little kids to her and made her start keeping journals of all the stories she came up with. So that's, that's my girl at six. And there's so much more. Mm -hmm. But that's a person. Right. In researching this case, that's the stuff I wanted, the good stuff. But even though Jean Benet's image has been burned into all of our brains, what fails to accompany it is her humanity. And to me, that could be the greatest tragedy that we look at in this episode. So moving forward, I need us all to remember that at the heart of this case, there was a very real little girl who did not get the chance to grow up. So I dug super deep, and I think I found here. So here's what I've got. Jean Benet loved roses, cats, and the color pink. She had a little white dog named Jacques who would run through her yard with her and jump in leaf piles in the fall while she would laugh and smile. She was athletic. She knew how to ski, ice skate, and rollerblade, which for a six-year-old, pretty good. Mm -hmm. She was um, joyful and liked to see the sunny side of every situation. She was smart and well-mannered. Her teachers loved her for her gentle manner and genuine care for her classmates. They even said that when a member of the class would get sick and have to go to the nurse, they would ask Jean Benet to walk with them because she was so kind and compassionate. Love that. Mm -hmm. When she wasn't on stage, she wasn't dressed up and was almost always outside. Quote, she loved to meet new people, explore new sites, and ask lots of questions, her Aunt Pam Paw said in an interview. She never tired. Her little legs could go and go. She did not like to wear shoes very much when she was outdoors. Quote, she loved to hear adults tell stories. Her wide eyes would glow with excitement as a tale unfolded. 
She adored family gatherings, her pageants, fresh grapes, holding hands, making up poems, and putting them to music. She loved to be held, to be with her friends, be read to, have her hair braided, and to giggle. JonBenet loved her life. That is also her Aunt Pam. Brian Scott, the Ramsey family landscaper, said, quote, she would follow me all over the yard finding something to do wherever I was working. I was happy to talk with her and would answer her questions about anything and everything. All topics you'd call natural science seemed to interest her. Quote, Chambonet was the kind of kid that kept conversations at the dinner table going. You know, she would go around and ask everybody how their day was and what they did, and she was just an energetic and fun kid. And that's from her older half-brother, John Andrew. Her brother Burke said, quote, we used to fight over, like, who would push the button on the elevator. I still think about that, you know, every time I go into an elevator. I still think about that. Her father, John Ramsey, said in his book, The Other Side of Suffering, quote, I remember Jean Benet's sneakers with the butterflies on the toes. Look, Daddy, see my new shoes? Ever since she was an infant, she loved anything that sparkled or lit up. She clapped her hands with delight at the sight of our first Christmas tree and the colored lights. Jackie Ballard, the mother of one of Jean Benet's friends from her kindergarten class, remembers the moment when she had to break the news of Jean Benet's death to her daughter, who burst into tears and managed to only say, Mom, she was my best jump rope friend. Oh, that breaks my heart. You know, and it should. Now, I'm not leaving out a quotation from her mom, Patsy, on purpose. Oh, that one's so hard. <sighs> there are lots of instances where Patsy talks about her daughter, but she's often very distraught, and the quotes aren't as collected. She says that she was an entertainer and a joy. She loved to stand on her head, and she could hula hoop. In the 1997 Barbara Walters interview, very famous, that Patsy and John Ramsey do, um, Patsy carries one of Jean Benet's gloves with her, she describes how she likes to remember that it used to contain her, quote, happy little hands. That's a little girl, not a beauty queen or a magazine cover. So with that in mind, now we will go into the story. In the interest of keeping everything as unconfused as possible in this very frequently misrepresented case, I'm telling you guys, there are a lot of things that you're going to think like, I'm very confident of these facts. Nope. Uh-uh. They're not real. So today we're going to go pretty linear. Just going to lay it out. And to do that, we have to begin with JonBenet's father, John Ramsey Sr. John Bennett Ramsey, yes, he named his daughter the fancy French version of his own name. <laughs> when I found that out, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, her name was JonBenet Patricia, so it mm-hmm. was her French dad and then her mom. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so John Bennett Ramsey was born on December 7th, 1943. That makes him 78, in case you're mental mathing it, in Lincoln, Nebraska. He attended Elkimos High School in Michigan, so apparently at some point in time he moved to Michigan. It does not say when. In 1966, he graduated from Michigan State University with a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering. While at MSU, John met elementary education major Lucinda Posh, and the pair married just after graduation. John then joined the Navy, where he served as a Civil Engineer Corps officer in the Philippines for three years and in an Atlanta Reserve unit for an additional eight years. In 1971, John Ramsey earned a master's degree in business administration from MSU. And in 1969, so that's just going back a little, John and Lucinda welcomed their first child, a daughter named Elizabeth, who they called Beth. In 1973, the young family moved from Michigan to Atlanta, Georgia, when John accepted a job as a computer salesman. Which sounds like he went door to door with a suitcase full of computers. Right. But I think he just worked in a store selling computers. Yeah, maybe. The couple welcomed a second daughter, Melinda, in 1972, and a son, John Andrew, in 1976, 
before divorcing after 12 years of marriage in 1978. The reasons for their divorce were never disclosed to the public, which I respect. You don't need to tell us why you got divorced. No. Live your life. But the pair remained amicable and shared responsibility for their three children. Like, they weren't—this wasn't a contentious divorce. It was like, this is done. All right. After his divorce during a brief period as a swinging bachelor in Atlanta— Ooh. Yeah. John met a beautiful woman named Patricia Ann Patsy Paw. Patsy had moved to Atlanta looking for work after receiving her bachelor's degree in journalism from West Virginia University in 1978. All right. John and Patsy began dating, and by 1980, they were married. Maybe when he was, like, doing his thing, maybe that's when he became, like, John Bonet. He was being fancy then. (laughs) He was never called John Bonet. I know. (laughs) Maybe he was in his head. Maybe he was like, it'd be so cool if people called me this. Yeah. And be like, if I have a child again. I'm going to gift them with that cool name. <laughs> I like the name. I think it's a cool idea. There's one, one like, Tumblr page, because, guys, I combed the recesses of the internet for this, that refers to her as Johnny B, which I thought was adorable. Oh, yeah. And I really hope somebody called her that out there in the world. Well, I had listened to a um, a short video on, like, children's pageants today. So they, met, oh, we're they, getting said, there. they said her name, but mm-hmm. they said it as John Bennett. Oh, so no. They were just like, John Bennett. And then Cotty, you know where I'm going with the next oh, name. Oh, no. <laughs> no. But, yeah, they just they just butchered every name that was in there. <laughs> it's like Siri reading it? What yeah, happened? Like Jean Bennett. And Get out of like, here. Oh, no. Oh, no. So now when I say Patsy was a beautiful woman, I mean it in the very strictest, most technical sense. She was beautiful, like competitively beautiful. Patsy grew up in Parkersburg, West Virginia, where she was extremely well-liked and popular. Patsy was involved in a great many after-school activities, but more than anything, her mother wanted to raise Miss America. Mm-hmm. Her goal was to have a Miss America in her family. And Patsy got the closest out of three sisters, winning the title of Miss West Virginia in 1977, but losing out on the Miss America title. Her sister Pamela was crowned Miss Charleston in 1980, which is less close, but still pretty good. Mm-hmm. Good job, pageant winners. Patsy was a good Southern woman who was raised to be polite and mannerly. When she and John married, she stopped looking for work and tended to their household. In the early 80s, John Ramsey formed a small computer company. And uh, the early 80s is like a really the best possible time to have formed a small computer company. It's when computers were really starting to kind of like take flight. People, they were far more prolific than they had been before. It's just like, oh, they're everywhere now. They're going to create all kinds of stuff. Right. So on January 27th, Patsy gave birth to her and John's first child, a son they named Burke. And Patsy had been a great stepmother before that, but she really, really wanted children of her own, especially a daughter. Right. But first she got Burke, who was lovely. In 1989, John formed the Advanced Product Group. Come on, man, with the names. Just do something else. And then it became one of three companies that merged to form a company called Access Graphics which he became the president and chief executive officer of. Now, this is a computer service company and a subsidiary of Lockheed Martin. This is big time, tons and tons of money. The headquarters of which was located in Boulder, Colorado. So finally, in 1991, the Ramsey family bought their stunning home on 15th Street in Boulder, a gorgeous and affluent community that people refer to as 30 square miles of fantasy surrounded by reality. Oh, I would love that. Yeah, so Boulder's funny because it has a pretty high crime rate. Right. 
Oh, yeah, I was reading this. It can be bit, dangerous. Yeah. Boulder isn't mm-hmm. always safe, but there's like pockets of it, mm-hmm. the suburbs that are like just rich, super beautiful. I mean, this home was almost 7,000 square feet. That's right. an enormous home. That's an insane size house. And it's a lot of that. And people that have lots of money and are safe and feel this false sense of security because they live in this pocket and they've never known any kind of adversity. Mm-hmm. It's like a beautiful little fairy tale. And um, side note, in 1996, when this happens, um, John Ramsey's estimated net worth was around $6 million. So oh, wow. They're rich. They're, yeah. they're, they have money. Just to give you, everybody an idea of what kind of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a lot. I don't know what that is in today's money. I didn't look that part up. It's definitely more. Right. So, um, and if this wasn't enough of a beautiful dream, on August 6, 1990, Jean-Benet Patricia Ramsey was born. And Jean-Benet was a beautiful child right from the start. And Patsy was over the moon. But just as quickly as their joy had reached its peak, tragedy struck. John's oldest daughter, Beth, was in a car accident and died tragically on January 8, 1992. Oh. Yeah. She and her boyfriend, Matthew Darrington, who was 22 years old at the time, were driving through some bad weather just outside Chicago. His BMW collided with a bakery truck. Matthew was the one driving. The other driver was not sighted, and Elizabeth Ramsey died of massive internal injuries. Oh, no. What happened to the driver, her boyfriend? I guess he lived Mm. because it doesn't say that he also died. It just says she died, which is like a crazy, random, tragic occurrence. Right, yeah. The Ramseys barely had time to recover from this loss before Patsy was diagnosed with stage 4 ovarian cancer in 1993, mm. which she, against all odds, managed to beat. Okay. She does die years later when it comes back, which is mm. unfortunate. But at this point in time, and this is like mid-90s, she beat stage 4 ovarian right, cancer. Right, that's great. It was pretty, pretty good. Then for a time, things were good. Blissfully good, it would seem. Now, there are some sources that say during Patsy's battle with ovarian cancer, this first one, um, the kids briefly lived with their grandmother. So she, I guess John was working a lot and Mm -hmm. Patsy couldn't take care of them because she was very sick. And so they went to live with their grandmother for a brief period of time. Not a ton of follow-up on that, but it is listed some places and it sounds logical to me. Right, that's pretty normal. Especially with their family dynamic, which was very much Patsy takes care of the children Mm -hmm. and John works long hours. So that makes sense to me. There are some places that say like the kids' behavior, which we'll talk about later, regressed at this point in time. But that's not uncommon either. Like you're Mm -hmm. suddenly taken out of your family home in your normal dynamic. You're you're going to do some stuff. Like there are a lot of reports that JonBenet was a bedwetter. It's true. And also we're going to go on to talk about why that is not what you think it is. And they say it kind of ignited at this point in time. But it's a major traumatic transition. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense Exactly. And a lot of people, a lot of sources, I should say, fail to mention these kind of things. Like, oh, mm-hmm. well, there were other things that went on. Mm-hmm. They just take it as what they want to see it as, which is what I was talking about in the very beginning. A lot of people say things like, oh, bedwetting is a sign of sexual abuse. So that's what must right. have happened. It's a lot of things. Right. And no, we have to consider them That makes a lot all. of sense to me because I had something like that happen when I was Aww. younger. Well, Will had to stay with us for a couple weeks, remember? Your husband. He's pretty traumatic, yeah. so. No, no, but it was just, you know, like the fact of your just parents yeah. having to go away for a while because of a sick relative. It's, you know, it's very so different, yeah. There's just a lot happening. And as a small child, you're like, 
I don't understand. Yeah, for you sure. Know? That mm-hmm. is a big deal for little kids and people mm-hmm. underestimate. It just, to me, the overriding like theme seems to be that people underestimate how much of a fully formed person a child is. Right. They think they're just like a freaking tote bag. They're not. They're, that's a person with feelings and, and opinions and, mm-hmm. and memories pr- and, memories and, and trauma and, and they're processing everything. You have, you have to remember that and it feels to me like a lot of people don't. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Patsy finally had her little girl with whom she could share her love of the pageant world and the beauty industry. In her interview with Barbara Walters, she refers to this as the same as a father wanting to share his love of baseball with his son. Right, that's a common, like, correlation that yeah. a lot of, like, pageant moms Because are... Barbara Walters does, like, people think this is perverse. Mm-hmm. And she's like, that's insane. The only reason, the, if you think it's perverse, that's a reflection of you, not the children. Because what the children are doing is wholesome and fine. I have a lot of problems with that, and we'll go into it in a little bit. But that that is from her point of view. And it's what she was taught. Mm-hmm. So, JonBenet was also a natural at the pageant life. She's good at it right away. She breezed through public appearances with the poise and posture of a woman three times her age. She had scores and scores of photos in ornate off- outfits and full faces of makeup with her cascading blonde hair that Patsy bleached to achieve that perfect Barbie doll mm-hmm. charm. That's a, it's a weird red flag to a lot of people. And I agree, bleaching your little kid's hair is like, oh, kind but of intense. not abnormal in that scene. No. And JonBenet had a full wall of trophies to back all of this up. Mm-hmm. She was very good at what she did. She was she would sing and perform. You can see any amount of videos of her doing it online. Um, she she sincerely looks like one of the Price is Right girls. She has that kind of like posturing at six years old. Mm-hmm. JonBenet won her first competition in 1994 at just four years old at the Colorado State All Star Kids Pageant, and from there she just kept winning. She won America's Royal Miss, Colorado State's All-Star Cover Girl, Little Miss Charlevoix, Michigan, where they had a vacation home, Little Miss Colorado, Little Miss Merry Christmas, Little Miss Sunburst, and National Tiny Miss Beauty. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Especially considering she only had, I think, two years in which to do that. Okay. It seemed that she was poised for that Miss America title that her mother so desperately wanted. And apparently her grandmother, Patsy's mother, was like, oh, man, now I'm going to put all my hopes on this little girl. Like, she's going to win it for our family. Mm-hmm. Again, this is a couple sources and not all sources. And that's how most information in this case is, unfortunately. But kid pageants are something I will never understand, no matter how hard I try. They're too young to express the desire to wear showgirl attire. And she did dress like a showgirl with, like, feather fans and leotards. And they're too old to consent to being caked in makeup and baby heels and parade in front of a group of adults who score them, not to mention how this practice aggressively sexualizes young children. Leading psychologists agree that participation in these events can lead to major self-esteem issues later in life, eating disorders, depression, anxiety, self-harm, substance abuse, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. So why do it? What is to gain? Now, the funny thing is, I thought there was a lot of things to gain. But then, even in briefly talking to Leslie about her research before today, I was shocked. So, Leslie, why don't you give us a little uh, Toddlers and Tiaras TED Talk? Sure. Bring us, bring us to pageant Jesus. All right. So, beauty pageants originated in the U.S. in 1921 in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Yes. An AC hotel owner had an idea that beauty pageants could boost tourism after Labor Day and thus created the Miss America pageant. Indeed. 
1961, the women's pageant had become so popular that they created Little Miss America for younger women. Great. And from there, more child beauty pageants started popping up. Now, some of our listeners might be familiar with baby parades, and they would they would hold these on, like, boardwalks. Kate May has one still. And judges would give out prizes to the cutest babies. What if you're, like, an ugly baby? You don't get a prize then. That's terrible. So these kinds of events had been going on for decades before the child beauty pageants became, like, a national competition. So it wasn't, like, super out of the... The realm, it was just like, oh, now it's on, like, a national level and there's, like, rules and regulations Mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, But fun fact, Holly, Mm. my Aunt Dottie, your mother-in-law, entered my mother, Diane Leslie Wydell, in the Avalon, New Jersey Baby Parade. And she won second place back in 1954. Please find a picture. I have one. Do you want to see it right now? And And then I'm going to post it on our— It's got to be in there. It's going to be wonderful. You have to see Baby Parade Diane. There she is in all her glory with Aunt Dottie. (gasps) Who looks exactly the same. (laughs) Oh, my God. She does. I don't know that she aged at all. So that was my mom was one. She was one year old. She is in a wicker baby pram with giant bicycle wheels. Who is next? Is that? I think that's a friend that they just brought down. Maybe There's a girl in a gown with a parasol. Mm -hmm. And then we'll know. I'll get her name. My mother-in-law with like a cute little hat. I can't. They're clearly on a boardwalk, too. And then there's a kid in the background who is, like, disaffected and hates all of it. (laughs) (laughs) Who knew? All right. (laughs) So, child beauty pageants now consist of all those under 18. Some parents start their children out at just a few months old. It's not unheard of for a baby contestant to win while asleep in their parents' arms. Cute. (laughs) These beauty pageants are a $5 billion industry in America. Nope, that's too many dollars. Approximately a quarter of a million children compete in more than 5,000 pageants a year. I hate that. Each child beauty pageant is an event created to reward children for their appearance and personality. Every competition has the beauty competition. From there, the pageant could take different shapes and hold different events like an interview portion, Mm -hmm. a talent portion, and a photogenic component. Modeling is a really big deal in these pageants. Their aim is to look photogenic like the entire time. They do, man. They have that Price is Right thing where they just look like they're spokesmodeling. Yeah. There's, um, so I watched a lot of Toddlers and Tears. Oh, you poor thing. And one of the things that uh, the girls will do is, you know, they're smiling the whole time in, in the front. And then as they turn, they, like, do some, like, facial exercises Ew. to calm their, like, face. Yeah. And then as they're turning back, they, like, put on their perfect smile. Oh, I hate that. Now, I'm an athlete, and the idea of disciplining your child to focus on a routine, stay calm and controlled under pressure, and to show off your talent while hopefully having some fun doesn't really bother me. I get it. I understand that. Like, I love a sport. What does bother me is that these pageants feel like they are way more for the parents than they are for the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, at least at first, you know, I can understand if maybe they grow into liking them, but— They're just so young. But, you can't consent to that at that age. But I feel like even if they grow into loving them, most of these kids are just groomed to love them. Yeah. Like they think that they do. Yeah. So, and a lot of these kids will, um, you know, they'll continue for several more years, and then some will just never stop competing. They'll go on to the bigger levels. They might then join, you know, the Miss USA, Miss America, 
Miss World, whatever, <laughs> whatever there Miss is. Miss Galaxy. Yeah. I think there's also a Miss America volunteer now, which is the group that I think doesn't like, they don't agree with the new rules of Miss America. Sure, there are definitely some parents who enter their babies or toddlers into these events because it's the thing to do in their area, and they're told that beauty pageants can help grow confidence, hard work, and determination in their children. Many of these parents purposefully find pageants that are more casual, meaning judges look for natural beauties like no makeup, natural hair, uh, natural hairstyles, and just focus more on, rather than looks, they focus more on personality, actual talents. And a lot less, like, sexy walking and flirting with your eyes. There is too much of that in these kid pageants. They are all sexy walking and flirting with their eyes. And they're babies. It's Mm -hmm. awful. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of these child beauty pageant parents are obsessed with the pageantry of it all. The makeup, the hair, the costumes, the type of personalities that will win over the judges. Okay, so as I said, I watched a ton of Toddlers and Tiaras, and I watched the oh, HBO documentary that was filmed in 1999 and followed two young child beauty queens. That's what they called them. I hate that. One was about the age of John Bonet. And I have to say, I felt really sad after watching all of it. It's really sad. Mm-hmm. They're so forced into that, like, happy shell. In Toddlers and Tiara, there's definitely seemed to be more of a push for the natural looks because it's a little later in time, right? Because they have to change some things at this point. However, parents were and still are spray tanning their toddlers. Oh, God. Waxing and plucking their children's eyebrows. No, thank you. Caking on makeup, which I know dancers do, but this is to look way more adult than just like a pop on stage, you know? One of the mothers, and therefore I guess probably way up a lot of other moms or and fathers, injected their eight-year-old daughter with Botox because no. some of the other parents mentioned that she had some lines on her face. Guys, I need Botox so bad. And then when they asked the kid, which I don't even know why they bother asking the kids yeah, why how they the fuck feel you about ask it, them? they were just like, oh, I just like it. Like, I'm a little bit more smooth. You're like, how do you know that They don't have anything. Things? You just have a paralyzed forehead And the mom's now. just like, she likes it. She wants it done. She wants no, her lips she plump. No, not okay. Give me her lip filler. I'll <sighs> take it. So the pageant life kind of becomes the only thing that they know. And a lot of, of times the kids are like, I really like it because most of the time they say, I get to spend time with my mom or my dad and we just do a lot of things. And, it, you know, I get oh, that in is the family. So sad. I'm really involved with the family. Like and a lot of times the older siblings and even younger, like all they do is whatever this kid is doing. They have to follow them to all the pageants oh and help them. Well, and, that was mm-hmm. Dominique's brother. That was Burke. He just yeah. went and kind of like. I don't know, disassociated in a corner or something. Mm -hmm. He just was like, yeah, I went, whatever. It was what it was. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes if they have older siblings who maybe they were dancers or they did something, like their life now becomes teaching their little sibling how to do the dance moves and stick it. And a lot of times the families get really involved because they could also be winning a lot of really cool prizes. And a lot of these prizes are lots of money, um, big Like, they can get cars. But this is, like, what's crazy to me. Because you can win from a couple hundred to, like, 10 grand. And then you could also win a car. But, like, because every five-year-old loves a car. They need a car. They need a car. Gotta drive. This is clearly for the kids. It's for them. Mm -hmm. Now, money, I would assume, like, hey, you get money because 
you know, this can go to towards their future their education. and help set them yeah. off, their education. And a lot of times, like, I know that's what Miss America is for. That's, that's for scholarships. I feel like Miss America is a different institution. It's very, like, mm-hmm. philanthropy and scholarship-based. It is. That's and, what like, that's for. This is not that. This is a profitable organization. And that, I confuse the two 100% mm-hmm. because I do know several women who are in the pageant world. Mm-hmm. And a lot of—and it's, it's not— I mean, they do dress up and look beautiful in gowns, but a lot of it is also like public speaking and their platform where they're going to be charitable. And then once they win, they have to know like how they're going to make an impact on their community. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of that involved. And I thought, oh, maybe these kids are getting like their education funded, but that's not unless their parents choose to use it on that, I guess. No, most of this money ends up having to just go back into the cost to get them there, which— So say they say they win the $5,000 prize, which is, like, great. You're like, wow. Probably the girl that won that, her dress cost her. So remind you, oh, again, yeah. these are toddlers. They probably cost anywhere from, and especially the winner, I'm sure, probably cost over $2,000 for course. her outfit. And that's just for the one outfit. Um, then you also have to pay because they don't pay for you to, to go to these things. So you have to pay for your hotel room, your transportation there. All, obviously, all the cost for either making the costumes, um, any food, you know, all yeah. the travel expenses. Not to mention, it's not just one costume. It's several. It's several, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it generally costs a lot. Um, there was one mom who clearly didn't have that much, and she probably spent like 70 grand just on uh, just on pageants that year. Jesus. For her daughter to make, I don't even think, 10 grand that Probably year, not. But she was winning some. I don't know. Um, there's also a fee to even enter these. And a lot of times, uh, I and I know that this is the case now. I'm not sure if back then with, um, like, during Jean Benet's time. But I know that parents can literally just buy the awards. So and what's I, the point even? Well, I still think that there's, like, a grand supreme winner. I am the child yeah. pageant supreme. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I think that almost every child ends up leaving with awards, and it's generally because the parents are, are literally buying them. Of course. Yeah. That's bananas. I hate that. I had to watch a two-year-old get extremely excited to win a trophy for first runner-up uh, that was larger than her, and then watched her dad not even clap for her because that prize meant that she wasn't in the running for the big cash prize. Um, he didn't even tell her a good job. He was just like, well, I'll have to explain to her why she wasn't good enough, and then we'll have to keep working on the routine. She was too. How? What? She was just There excited. is no good enough. They can't put that effort yeah. forth. She was just excited to put on, like, a fun little dress and, like, prance around. And she was clapping. She was excited for the other contestants. Like, she was like, yay. She was just having a good old time. And this is why the association with how your looks are what you are what your worth mm-hmm. is based upon mm-hmm. adversely affects these kids enormously in their adulthood. Yeah, so a lot of it was, especially uh, the documentary I watched, that was from 1999. So Jean Benet had, you know, just happened right, to a yeah. lot of them. And uh, it was, I don't, it, it really was, even even Toddlers and Tears, I'm sure many of you have actually watched some of those. Well, I couldn't do it. But it is very much based on looks. There were a couple of pageants where you can see that they are, they're trying to be a, like a little bit better and they maybe are going the route of like, of uh, more confidence boosting and, and natural, I don't know, the body 
not body shaming, basically. Yeah, which which is absurd to do to oh, like a five year old mm-hmm. or less. Yeah, it's strange because what I thought that a lot of these were was a way for maybe to like get your kid noticed and have a modeling career and be like on TV. But no kid even though look. they say that that's what these are for, I don't. That's not what's actually happening. Oh, hard no! Look these at the Disney just, Channel. Those are not pageant winners. No, those kids literally went out for a Disney. Channel those are show. Ta- those are yeah. kids that are like actor kids. Yeah, they went they went for auditions. Yeah, and they did that. They weren't pooled from no. one of no. these beauty oh, pageants. Oh God, no. Yeah, but that's what it seems like when you go to these sites and I'm reading them. I'm like, oh okay, I see what's happening. But then when I was like watching these shows, I was like, but that's not what's happening. At no, all. and it's I. It's frustrating because it's not, it's just not healthy for these kids. It's one thing to throw your kids into sports and then let them have time to like, to decide. I mean, it's not healthy for a parent to make your kid play basketball when he's actively saying he doesn't want to, or, or when he's clearly doing it just to spend time with you and not really like what he wants to do. Can you imagine? Oh my God. But it's also, I think what makes this the hardest is that it's a individual sport which I think is hard for to like throw your kid into mm-hmm. because it's only dependent on them. It's not a team sport. Doesn't matter like if the other person won, they didn't do anything to help that person win. They just lost to let that person win. So Ugh. so if they lost, they lost. If they won, they won. It, it yeah. has nothing to do with team, team building. building or, yeah. It's just a lot of shitting on each other. And I think that's what's hard like to be that young and to only learn just, I don't know, like a single. And it's not even just like, oh, you're only worth it if you're very good at something. It's you're only worth it if you're pretty. Yeah. If which you're stereotypically so pretty. Fucked up. Too. Yeah. Like, this is what this Our person version is of saying. Pretty, which is so often like this weird, skinny little white girl. Mm-hmm. That's what you have to look like. Or to like go on stage and act like a two year old and then be told like you were too bouncy. What what does that mean? I don't. It's it's all disgusting. Did you talk about France? Well, so in France, they got rid of they outlawed yeah, them. They outlawed them mm-hmm. because it's bullshit to hypersexualize a child. Yeah. So a lot of these contests um, nowadays they don't allow, for instance, because they still do a bathing suit, uh, which they do is a swimwear insane. Routine. Why are you putting a child in a bathing suit and parading her in front of adults? And they call it like old school style. So I they don't, don't care. Um, so they they don't. A lot of them don't allow two pieces. It's all one piece. And I'm like, uh, what does it matter? You're They're looking still, at this child's body. Yeah. It's still how do you not understand that this is like pedophile catnip? Yeah. It's wild. And one of the things, too, so when they do their makeup, when they do their outfits, when they pick their songs, um, maybe that they're singing, the moms and the judges are, well, so, like, the moms are picking these certain songs out right. for their kids, and the judges are kind of the ones, you know, suggesting it this way, is that they're, they pick out older songs. So, like, this is why they always look like, you know, this is why Jean Benet will look like Dolly Parton. Think of Little Miss Sunshine. Yeah, well, exactly. Because they want them to, the the older they look and sound, the more experienced they look and come off. It's like hairology almost. Gross. Yeah. So that's why they do that. I hate to it. To make them look really mature. Instead of being like, why, why can't they sing like a Disney song? Well, that was Britney song? Spears as a kid too. Mm-hmm. She's like singing these like torch songs about 
falling in love and getting divorced yeah. and all this crazy shit. And she's like a tiny child. Yeah. Why? Ugh. No. And I just can't. I hate when I'm watching the judges and there's just like this old man judging them. And you know what he's looking at. Ugh. Or like the guy. They don't have these people on stage as much anymore. But like the old, like, you know, like a 30, 40-something-year-old man hosting. And he's like singing love songs mm-hmm. to these girls. Ugh, it's so Which used to be a thing. I know. Oh, God. That's yeah. what they were doing when Jean Benet was out there. There would so be gross. a man in a tuxedo suit that they had to look and flirt with. And the dads or moms would be like, oh, like, you got to look at them. You got to smile. You got to want it. And then we wonder, like, why bad things can happen to these kids. Yeah. It's it's rough. It's a lifestyle that people have. I, will n- I don't understand it, though. And they're also putting their child in this very— and I'm going to say sexualized because I think it is, and there are yeah. a lot of psychologists that agree with me, but you may disagree, whatever. If you disagree with that, you can at least agree with the fact that it is adult mm-hmm. appearance. You're putting this kid out there looking like way more grown up than they are for anyone to see. Here's the thing. I love I love dressing up. When I have a child, so I. I want to put them in costumes constantly. If I have animals, I want them in costumes constantly. I love it. Listen, you're preaching to the choir. But when I watched— Toddlers and Tears today. I felt like there were moments where I was like, it's cute. I get the cuteness. I see where like some of this is like fun. You're a little cowgirl. Pew, pew, pew. Yeah, and it's like adorable. But then there are these moments where you're like, why why are you batting your eyes like that? Why are you being taught to move your hips like Mm -hmm. that? Why are you being yelled at to like give kisses and having to kiss everybody off the stage. Why? Which is a whole other thing why that psychologists people, hate. Why are you have people no consent picking, to that. Why are people picking you up when you win? Like, why are men picking you up when you they win should and not running have access you to the to stage? Touching you. Why no. are, I don't, I don't love it. I don't love, there are like little parts where I'm like, this is cute and it's like a little talent show and, and they look like kindergartners. So you're like, oh, this is like, a cute little kindergarten graduation thing, and then all of a sudden you're like, this is not a cute little— Nope. It's like when I watch <sighs> grade school or high schoolers do Chicago for their musical. Oh, I just can't. Oh, that's rough. <laughs> yeah, I get it. <laughs> I understand the desire, but, like, I don't—as a parent, I don't want to sit through it. <laughs> I know. That's that's tough. That's, there's a anyway, lot. Oh, God. we have a lot to get through. That's kids' pageantries. Kids, kids pageants are— <laughs> I'm gonna like venture out of this. I'm gonna venture out of the safe box for a second and and just be very honest. I think they're fucking awful, and we have to stop it because that it, that that just breeds and it's girls. Let's be very honest. It's not boys. It's almost always girls. They don't. It's not the same for the boys. Nope. It's girls who think that they are only worth as much as they are good looking, and they are driven to a life that just chases that moment of acceptance. All of them? No, not all of them. Of course not. Some of them escape that fate, but a lot of them. So anyway, that's our that's our ugh, our opinion. And thank you, Leslie, for all of that. It was very informative. Ugh. So now, on December seventeenth, nineteen ninety six, Jean Benet participated in her last pageant. She performed "Rocking Around the Christmas Tree." There's a video. It's very cute. And modeled a few outfits. The competition took place at the Southwest Plaza in Denver, Colorado. Looks like a mall to me. She was crowned Little Miss Christmas and won the medal for talent. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, fun fact. Yeah. The, a lot of the Christmas ones, you don't get money for. Those are just like fun and 
They're just okay. supposed to, people just go she, and, uh, and it's generally the one that the girls can literally do whatever they want. She doesn't look like a little sex pot in it. She's in like this red, fully mm-hmm. clothed outfit and she's like bouncing around and yeah. singing, rocking around the Christmas tree. She's, yeah, because they aren't, they aren't going to win like an actual like money prize. That really so, makes sense. So parents are generally like, you do what you want. Okay, this one's for you. <laughs> yeah. All right. So yeah, she was crowned Little Miss Merry Christmas and won the medal for talent. Good job, John Bonet. The holiday season was also Patsy's favorite time of the year. The house was decorated to the nines, and I mean to the nines, um, with a different themed Christmas tree in each room. They had something like 12 Christmas trees. Wow. Yeah, she was like really into Christmas. That would make sense. Yeah. 12 days of Christmas. <laughs> JonBenet had her own, of course, yep. in her giant, beautiful room. It was a lush and covered in pink things and ceramic ornaments. It was so pretty. Burke had one too, but it was like really tiny and on a blue plastic tub. He probably loved it. He was like, cool. I don't know. I don't know why this inequity bothers me so much, but it does. I look at their. It just sounds. That sounds like what my boys would have done. But also, her room is like there are two beds and French doors and beautiful things everywhere. And his room is like a twin bed and a little tree on a box. Okay. Okay. The whole thing made (laughs) me very sad. I was like, oh no. No one else mentions this either in any of the articles I read, but I was so bothered by it. The rooms are such a demonstration of how they were perceived by their family. Burke's is pretty austere. Still messy, but austere compared to Jean Benet's powder puff pink suite. Anyway, I digress. The Ramses, a popular and extremely social family, had their fair share of holiday plans. On the 23rd, they would host their annual Christmas party where they would have um, a big table where everybody decorated gingerbread houses. That was like the point of the party. And Santa would pay a visit to the children. So Patsy hired um, someone to play Santa every year. He was a local man named Bill McReynolds, a former University of Colorado journalism professor. Bill makes me sad. Bill loved playing Santa. Fucking loved it. Loved being Santa. Did it for kids, did it at senior centers, just really liked making people happy. Waxes poetically about it forever. And he loved Jean Benet. Bill had also played Santa the previous year at the Ramsey's party. And each year, Jean Benet gave him a little glass bottle of gold glitter that she told him was stardust as a Christmas gift. Cute. Yeah. And Bill treasured this. He, um, in between the two Christmases, he had open heart surgery. And he that's like one of the things he brought with him. So like, yeah, she was like, I hope you feel better. And he was like, I'm just going to keep me strong. And he actually ended up telling his wife that like, if I die on the table after I'm cremated, like put this in with me because I want, I I just, her spirit was so good for me and I want it with me. And a lot of people go, well, that means he was a perv. (sighs) He was not a perv. I hate this theory. I hate it so much. I hate it more than anything in the world. And I know I'm not even in the theory section yet, but I'm so fired up because this is like, this man was like so pure and kind. And his wife went on to write a true crime play about Sylvia Likens. And then everyone thinks that they're guilty. Oh, no. Sylvia Likens is a totally different case who was also found dead in a basement, but for different reasons and with a way different trajectory. Mm. People have requested her. Her case is also going to ruin me, but eventually we'll do it because it's important. Anyway. They have this party on the 23rd. Bill plays Santa. The kids play games. They make gingerbread houses. The next night is Christmas Eve, and the Ramses attend a nighttime mass at a local church. Then they go to bed, and the next morning they wake up, and they have the kind of Christmas that every child would dream of. It's like full-on fantasy mode. 
Both children got new bikes. Jean Benet got a dollhouse and a doll specifically designed to look like her pre-American girl. Mm. Or even if it's pre, it's it's not an American girl doll. It's different and it's terrifying. Okay. It wouldn't be pre-American girl. But no, I guess you're be. right. But it wasn't an American girl doll, okay. just for anybody who's wondering. Burke got an extensive model train set up with, like, the table and all the stuff. And, like, the, this isn't just, like, around the tree. This is, like, model trains, like mm-hmm. Adam's family model trains. And they both got, like, pretty much every toy they could have ever wanted. Patsy then made pancakes after presents, and then the kids went outside to play with their neighborhood friends on their new bikes. Good Christmas. Yeah. That night, the Ramses went to dinner at their friends Fleet and Priscilla White's home and returned home afterwards. They said they were there for like three, four hours. They got home probably like nine o'clock or so. Then they put Burke and Jean Benet to bed. After that, Patsy went to bed herself, followed shortly after by John. The family had plans the next day to go to their vacation home in Michigan to meet up with John's um, older children and some other family members. So they were like, we did Christmas here. We got to go to bed. The next morning, we're going to wake up. We'll go to Michigan. So then we get to 5.52 a.m. on December 26th, 1996. The sun has not risen yet at that point in time in Colorado. It doesn't rise until 7.20, so it's good and dark. And the city of Boulder, Colorado is still pretty quiet. Boulder is a college town, so a lot of its residents have left for the holidays. Families are sleeping peacefully, many of them recovering from Christmas, because if you celebrate Christmas, you sure do need to recover from it. Businesses are not yet open and schools are closed, and a light snow has just dusted the area. Boulder County Communications is usually busy. That's the call center where 911 calls go to. Mm -hmm. The county is extremely large, and people call 911 more often than you might think. So it wasn't a shock of any sort for the 911 line to ring at 5.52 a.m. on the morning after Christmas. The operators figured that maybe someone had too much to drink the night before and needed medical assistance, or it was a person who had injured themselves on a new car or with a new firearm or a kid that hurt themselves on a new toy. Like, there's a million ways to get hurt after Christmas. The usual stuff. But just a few seconds into this call, operator Kim Archuleta knew that something serious had happened. And the call went like this. Patsy Ramsey, in a kind of muffled voice, police, 911, does their 911 emergency. Patsy Ramsey, 755 15th Street, 911. What's going on there, ma'am? Patsy Ramsey, we have a kidnapping. Hurry, please. Now, Patsy is hysterical. I'm not going to do an impression, but she is absolutely hysterical. 911, explain to me what is going on, okay? Patsy, we have a, there's a note left and our daughter is gone. 911, a note was left and your daughter is gone? Patsy, yes. 911, how old is your daughter? Patsy, she is six years old. She's blonde, six years old. 911, how long ago was this? Patsy, I don't know. I just found a note, a note, and my daughter is missing. 911, does it say who took her? Patsy, what? 911, does it say who took her? Patsy, no, I, I don't know. It's there. There's a ransom note here. 911, it's a ransom note? Patsy, it says SBTC, victory, please. 911, okay, what's your name? Are you? Patsy, Patsy Ramsey, I am the mother. Oh my God, please. 911, okay, I'm sending an officer over, okay? Patsy Ramsey, please. 911, do you know how long she's been gone? Patsy, no, I don't. Please, we just got up and she's not here. Oh my God, please. 911, okay. Patsy, please send somebody. 911, I am, honey. Patsy, please send somebody. 911, I am, honey. Patsy, please. 911, 
Take a deep breath. Patsy, hurry, hurry, hurry. 911, Patsy, 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 Patsy. At this point, Patsy has hung up. Kim sent two uniformed officers over to um, to 15th Street, uh, and they arrived on the scene within eight minutes. So pretty quick. When the officers arrive, they ask Patsy what happened. She tells them that she woke up at 5.30 a.m. and went down the stairs to make coffee. As she was doing so, she discovered a two-and-a-half-page handwritten note laid out on the staircase, which she presents to the officers. The Ramsey state that they have absolutely no idea who it might be from. Patsy said that after she read the note, she screamed for her husband and ran directly to Jean Benet's room, which was empty. So this note is, a, I'm going to read it later, but it's a ransom note that says that the people in question have taken Jean Benet and they want a disclosed amount of money in exchange for their daughter. And if they don't give it to them, they're going to kill her. Okay. So, which is a general ransom note, but still. Mm-hmm. And then Patsy runs to Jean Benet's room. No Jean Benet. The Ramseys comb the house and see no sign of her. Then Patsy calls the police. After phoning the police, she tells them that she calls a few family members and close friends. Close family friends Fleet and Priscilla White, who they were at their Christmas party the night before, were there within minutes. This will become interesting because the ransom note specifically says, do not call the police or anybody else. And they immediately call the police and everybody else. And a lot of people point this out as something that is rather suspect, but also their daughter is missing, and you're probably going to say, fuck your note, I'm going to call the police. Right. I mean, there are two different reactions to that, and I don't think either one are invalid. I feel like when you see that in the movies, you're just like, I wish they just called the police. Mm -hmm. So now, the protocol for a first responding officer at a possible crime scene is to lock everything down. Secure the area, separate the witnesses, and take statements. Now, we saw this in our case last week, The officers came to perform that wellness check on Joel and Lisa Guy and took stock of the situation and then immediately called in detectives. So they were like, okay, we looked at every room. We're going to lock this shit down. Now we call detectives. I've praised these police officers before. They did do their job properly. Though in this case, detectives were not immediately immediately available. It was the day after Christmas and the Boulder Police Department was short-staffed. The Boulder Mm -hmm. Police Department will go on for many years to speak regrettably about how they reacted to this crime scene. Responding officers spoke to the Ramseys and the friends that they had called to their house. Now there's a bunch of them there, all together in a group. Family friend Fleet White, as I said, had arrived within minutes and then more followed. Officer Rick French did a cursory search of the house, well, most of it. He did not enter the basement. He paused in front of a basement door, looked to see if there was any sign of entry or exit, He did not see either of those and then moved on. Later on, when Officer French was asked why he didn't go in the basement, he said at that point in time, he was only looking for an exit route. He said he was only looking for a point of escape or entry, and so when he didn't see it, he just kept going. He didn't think he needed to look down there. The house appeared to be untouched when they walked through it, but it's kind of hard to tell as the house is pretty cluttered and unorganized. Some might even say that it was messy. Some sites call it sloppy. But really, I'm not here to judge them. This is less disturbing to me than people who keep everything neat as a pin, even when company is not imminently coming. Mm-hmm. It just looks lived, super lived in. And they just had Christmas and a party. They just had Christmas and a big party, and they have two kids. Like, yeah, okay, whatever. Remnants of Christmas were all around. There were toys under the tree, gingerbread houses on the table. The counters had clutter on them, as did the floor. 
There was a bowl of pineapple and milk half-eaten on the table, which initially disgusted me beyond belief because acid and milk sounds to me like curdled milk in your stomach. But apparently this is not an uncommon snack. It's weird. It's, I feel like it would make me sick, but whatever. There is clothing tossed around on all the bedroom floors and beds. There's clothing on the bathroom floors as well, like laundry, the pants that JonBenet wore the night before, like on the floor in her bathroom. It's just, there's stuff. The laundry room had clearly been transported to a, like, gift wrapping station at that point in time. There's just, like, paper and bows and stuff on the washing machine and scissors. Like, that's where they were wrapping presents. And it, it just looks like life. It's messy and it's garish. But this was Christmas 1996. And I think that some of those things were kind of par for the course. So let's take, like, a momentary pause. And, Leslie, why don't you take us back to Christmas 1996? Sure. What was it like then? Well, so I talked about kids stuff, right? Indeed. So the top gifts that year, because we've talked about 1996 a lot. We have. Which is fine. Um, And some of these will be a refresher. Totally fine. All right. So top gifts that year for 1996 Christmas. N64. Nintendo 64. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tamagotchis. Tickle Me Elmo just came on the market. Great. So what's weird about this is that I remember this Christmas, 1996, specifically because my cousin uh, Joey came Mm -hmm. and his mom bought him Tickle Me Elmo. So it was like the big gift he was going to open. Wow. And so it was really fun because I got to play with it and it was kind of, it was cool. (laughs) We have one. You can play with it Mm -hmm. whenever you want. But uh, but yeah, so I remember the 25th and 26th specifically. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Foam and color Barbie. Do you remember this? This is where you can color her hair. So she'd have bleach blonde hair. Mm -hmm. And then it came with a coloring kit that you could also color your hair with. You can have a blue, yellow, or pink. I guarantee you I wasn't allowed to have that. I never had it, but it was really, it looked cool. I bet it was cool. Uh, Miniature Beanie Babies were super in. Uh, Sky Dancers. Oh, yeah, those things. Mm -hmm. They're like those little hand helicopters, but fairies. Yeah. Cool. (laughs) Uh, Cabbage Patch Snack Time Kids. Oh, the one that was like recalled horribly? I think, were they recalled? Yeah, they ate a French fry, but they would also eat your hair. Oh, yeah. It was painful and terrible. Right, so they could eat a French fry or like pretzels. It was was one that like they, usually it was like the one that they'd give you, but they would eat. But if your hair got caught in the mechanism or something, Uh And then they had like little backpacks on, so like that's where the food would go. And then I did top Christmas movies. Oh, great. So the movies that came out this year were Jingle All the Way, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. I've never seen that. No. It, that no. one's fun. I don't need to see it again. But <laughs> Okay. Um, and then Christmas Every Day, which was an ABC made-for-TV movie <gasps> starring Robert Hayes, who's from Airplane and Homeward Bound, as I know him. There you go. Uh, he was the dad in Homeward Bound. And Eric Von Detten, who I had the hugest crush on. Oh, okay. He was in Escape to Witch Mountain and Brink on Disney. Oh. oh gosh, I loved him <laughs> so much. He had great hair. Good for him. Yeah, he was also in Princess Diaries. Nice. Ugh. Anyway, so that was Christmas <laughs> 1996. That's the Christmas we're living in. <laughs> so then officers looked in the bedrooms next including that of the Ramsey's nine-year-old son, Burke, who was seemingly still asleep in his bed, which is curious. So they, like, flashlight around, too. His room is dark. And this is according to an interview our old friend, Dr. Phil, did with Burke Ramsey relatively recently. This interview is a lot for 
a lot of people. I'm going to just pause for the cause and talk about Burke in this interview for one second because he does address all the things they talk about with Dr. Phil, and he does the whole thing kind of grinning like a Cheshire cat, and it, it, it unnerves people a lot. But here's the thing that Dr. Phil actually defends him on later, which is sort of unlike Dr. Phil. Burke, after this experience, was just kind of locked away in a house. His parents didn't want him in the outside world because there's so much paparazzi, so much attention, headlines everywhere saying that he did something to his sister, talking about his sister's graphic death, that they just hid him from the world. And then he just continued on that path as an adult to the point where he's like a, he works in computers remotely. Burke has not had interaction with people in a great many years. So he didn't really know how to talk to another human. And it's the same thing where people laugh at funerals. You just don't know how to control your emotions. So there are a lot of opinions you can allegedly have about Burke, but try not to base them on what he says to Dr. Phil because he is also a person that I think has been through a lot. Whatever reasoning you may give him for that, that's just... True, but he does recount to Dr. Phil, he goes, so what happened? And when Burke recounts this, he's like, okay, I remember my mother coming into my room. She went totally psycho. She was like screaming and freaking out, wanted to know where Jean-Benet was. And I was like, I don't know. Everything should be fine. I don't know where she is. I was sleeping. And then she left my room and I heard her screaming like, my baby, my baby, where's my baby? So I just like closed my eyes and went back to sleep, which a lot of people are like, the fuck? And he says, you know, Dr. Phil's like, well, how could you possibly go back to sleep? And he says, like, well, that's just who I was. Like, I didn't assume the worst thing had happened, and I just felt that I was the safest in my bed. Okay. All right. Yeah, I can respect that. And then he says, like, a little bit later, police came into his dark room with flashlights, and which is so weird that, like, they had called police, and they didn't, like, get him out of his bed. They weren't like, Burke, get up. The cops are coming. They just let him keep sleeping. And the I cops assume they just maybe almost forgot. forgot. Yeah, I thought so too. So they went into his room and they shined the lights around and they saw him and they're like, oh, hey, like, w- what happened? Do you know what happened here? And he's like, I have no idea. They said, your sister is missing. Do you have any idea where your sister could be? He goes, I don't know. She probably went, She probably is hiding somewhere around the house. And they said, okay. And they just closed the door and left him in there. Okay. So this whole event is really weird, but if you, you can hear it recounted directly from Burke on several occasions. Mm-hmm. So I'm inclined to believe that that's what happened. And again, it's also recounted from however many years later, so... But there is also footage of him as a child saying the same thing. Okay. okay. So he does he does answer the question. It's just better communicated when he's older. So then the officers checked the rest of the house, put crime scene tape up over Jean Benet's bedroom door. Just her bedroom door, though, not the rest of the house, not anywhere. And then at 7 a.m., an hour later, the responding officers called in for detective backup. An hour later... Wow. Okay. While they waited, the Ramsey house was open to any and all friends they had called to support them in their hour of need. People were looking around, moving items, tidying up, throwing away the trash, making breakfast, wiping down the countertop with disinfectant sprays. Anything you would never want to happen in a crime scene. Oh, my God. So this is, I mean, it's like the same as like Amanda Knox, just Mm -hmm. like people trying the crime scene is completely, comp- I mean, worse than Amanda. Well, I was going to say worse because they're like cleaning. Yep. They com- but like in, not in defense, but like in explanation, you go to your friend's house and she's like, everyone's coming over. You got to tidy up. 
I see that impulse. Right, but there's nobody you, there. It's to, terrible. Like, the police are there. They and they're not telling them no. It. No, that's the problem. Yeah. That is the, wherein the failure in this case lies. The police never say, hey, preserve this crime scene. Yeah. They just let them do it. And later on, police in an interview explain it by saying, well, we just figured this was the Ramses and that was their support system. So we didn't want to like, you know, disrupt things. I guess we should have told them no. Yeah, you made a big fucking mistake. You should have told them no. Yeah. You're a cop. Tell them to make a fire outside and everyone has to stand outside. Yeah, go stand around the trash can. (laughs) Bye. So it gets worse than this, though. Also, everyone discusses evidence openly. The cops are talking to the friends. The friends are talking to the Ramses. They're all talking to each other. And the ransom note is passed around from person to person to person to person. crazy. So any fingerprint evidence is fucking gone. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, as I mentioned earlier, the policy in this situation is to immediately separate people and talk to them independently. This is like in their training. This, this isn't is like textbook. New- yep. Think of like the Slenderman murders. The first mm-hmm. thing they did when they got those girls into custody, as afraid as they might have been, was to put them each in a separate room and talk to them alone. Mm-hmm. Now, oh, there's, there's, don't worry, there's, there's more. Lastly, in the laundry list of things that should never been allowed, Priscilla White then took nine-year-old Burke to her house away from all the commotion, which sounds like a kind thing to do. But Burke, even though he was nine, was in the house at the time of the crime and should have given a formal statement before being kept with family friends for days. Who could have told him anything that he was supposed to say? Right. They didn't really talk to Burke beyond, hey, what's going on, until later. The figure that is given is they spoke to Burke within the next two weeks. That is not soon enough. He was there. And one of the last three people to see her alive. Mm-hmm. So to review, this crime scene has been completely compromised already. And we're only two hours in. Now about that r- ransom note. Hang on to your hats because it reads as follows. Mr. Ramsey, colon, listen carefully, exclamation point. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We respect your business, but not the country it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed. And if you want to see her, if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. $100,000 of that will be in $100 bills and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate-sized attaché to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on the delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money and hence an earlier pickup of your daughter. Can you say early more? Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains and a proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you to not provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police or FBI, will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned, we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. 
You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. For you and your family are under constant scrutiny as well as the authorities. Don't try to go a brain, John. You're not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good southern common sense of yours. It's up to you now, John. Victory! S-B-T-C. That's the longest fucking ransom note in the history of ransom notes, and the FBI confirms it. For anyone unfamiliar with the practice of ransom notes, they are usually brief and to the point. Kidnappers don't want to give too much away too fast, and this one is off. But we will come back to that all later. And the SBTC thing, which people have speculated a million things about but never cracked that code. There's a lot of, like, Bible things, a lot of, like, Christian— um, I don't have them written down. It's about, like, praying, and then the victory is supposed to be victory over Satan, a lot of people say. Okay. There's no proof of any of that, and there's no other religious imagery in this letter, so I don't know why that was so forward in their yeah. thoughts. Then there's, like, a couple that might be business-related. None of them are puzzle pieces that fit. Right. They're I just— Because um, this now—so you had me later. We'll talk about some uh, theories. There. But some of them didn't really make sense to me because I didn't know the ransom note. But w- another one that I don't mention is, I think, because of his uh, his time in the military. Yes. Like, some stuff overseas. Like, some— Like, that could be, like, the lettering yeah. of— There's—here, I'll, I'll read a couple of them. Saved by the cross is the Christian one. The theory implies that preceding victory alludes to victory over Satan. Other journalists say that it's a reference to his naval training, as you said, in the Sebek Bay Training Center in the Philippines. Um, And then there's one that's, like, business-related. But again, like, none of them are, like, direct fits or they Mm -hmm. they don't connect to any person. They're just speculative and the best we can do. Right now it's important to remember that the kidnapper said— in this letter, that they would be making contact with John Ramsey between 8 and 10 Mm a.m., okay? Now, by 8 o'clock, there should be an extreme sense of urgency in that room, but there isn't. Some people say John Ramsey was checking his mail. He later says, well, we didn't know if it was 8 a.m., like, what tomorrow meant. Could it be that day? Could it be the next day? We don't know. I don't care. You should still be pretty fucking antsy. Right. And also because it said not to call anybody, so... Right, and you've called everybody! And they're clearly, it sounds like they would be being watched. Mm -hmm. That's what they said. By 8, 10 a.m., with the clock already ticking, Detective Linda Arndt arrives under the impression that she will be helping John Ramsey negotiate with a kidnapper. One detective. A wiretap is set up on the Ramsey's phone line. Yes, singular, this is a house phone. And John arranges to withdraw the $118,000. Evidence is collected, and the police team leaves Detective Linda Arndt alone with the family to await the call that never comes. So just to backtrack, this one woman comes in, and then all the police finish and leave her alone to handle whatever comes their way next, which for all they know is a team of murderous kidnappers. Wow. Yeah. This woman is like, Sort of a green detective. She has no homicide experience. She's, like, sent there to deal with this. In later interviews, she's clearly extremely intimidated by John Ramsey. 10 o'clock comes and goes that day, though, and nobody's panicking, which was red flags for the detective. Morning gives way to afternoon, and just before 1 o'clock, Detective Arndt 
kind of senses that people are very restless. She sees that John Ramsey's pacing the house, and so are his friends, and that they just need a task. They need something to distract their mind. So she pulls Fleet White aside and tells him to take John and search every inch of the home. Anything is that, that is out of order, anything that is related to Jean Benet that has gone missing or been moved or anything of the like, they should document and notify her immediately, even though police have technically already combed this house. Okay, tell the family to do it. Never heard that happen, but okay. So they agree to do this. There, there had clearly been more information in this house that was missed, too. I mean, like, a crime had occurred, and, like, there's, they found nothing. So John and Fleet start their search in the basement. They go directly to the basement, by the way, mm-hmm. the one place the cops haven't gone. And oh, that's the, right. They didn't, so they didn't even go through the whole house. No. And they go down there, and their basement, let me explain, is, like, a series of small rooms. It's a finished basement, but it's, like, a ton—I don't know why it's, it's organized like this. I've never really seen it, but it's, like, a lot of rooms— there's one that's like just Burke's train set set up on a table. There is one that, and a lot of them are just storage and mess, like open boxes and like just stuff, like a basement. Yeah. A messy basement, but a basement nonetheless. And then there is one in the back that is ac- that is accessible from an outside door that is like um, John's wine cellar. So it's behind a closed door most of the time. Um, and when they get to it, John notices that by a window leading to it, Okay, so the window is broken at the top and open, but he had done that himself previously because he was locked out of his house, so he broke the basement window to get in. They never fixed it. I guess it's sealed off well enough that it's not making the house drafty, and the screen is still intact. That window is is in its state. It's open. And underneath it is a briefcase-style-looking suitcase, like directly under the window, that John says was out of place and didn't belong there. Now, it is unclear whether it belonged in a different place in their home or whether they thought something brought somebody else brought it into the house. That is never specifically dealt with, which is really weird, but still nonetheless. So then they go into the very smallest room behind the door, the wine cellar, and when they open the door, John says in an interview that he immediately knew what he was looking at. He knew that it was his daughter on the floor. So JonBenet was laying on the floor on a white blanket with her hands bound over her head with tape, or, or sorry, like tape and nylon cord. There was a garrote, which is a strangling method that with uses like a rigid stick and like you pull the stick with cords so the stick would be like on your, you know, you use the stick to like strangle with it. It's a handheld ligature of rope or chain um, used to strangle a person. So they just use like a the this is a, a paintbrush handle. They use it for leverage, basically. Okay. Okay. Uh, we'll find out more about that later. Uh, and there was duct tape on her mouth, and she was clearly cold and dead. So horrible. Yeah. So John immediately runs to his daughter, pulls the tape off her mouth, tries to untie her hands. And, and take the things off her neck, but he has trouble doing all these things. He can't get her hands completely undone. He can only loosen the bindings. Then he picks her up and carries her up the stairs to the living room where he lays her next to the Christmas tree and covers her up with his sweatshirt. And Patsy is, her mother is wailing. They're both just hoping they can revive her. They don't know if she's dead. They don't know what to do. They just see their little girl. Patsy talks about how she just kind of prayed and it's obvious to everyone else in the room that this this little girl is dead, you know. Rigor mortis had already set in. 
In her interview with Barbara Walters, Patsy recalls laying her cheek on her daughter's cheek and feeling that it was cold. Oh, that's horrible. Which is like the worst image I have ever entertained. This is why I hate this case. That lives in my head now. That's just unimaginable. That's horrible to me. So now we have a murder case, obviously. Technically speaking, um, Linda Arn is also not qualified for this. She doesn't have a long murder resume. And she's by herself. And now there's a dead body. That has been moved and untangled. Ding, ding, ding. Now it's time to have this scene investigated. But there's just, oh, I don't know, a hundred other problems because it's been completely compromised. Not to mention, like you just said, the body may have been found, but it was also very, very tampered with and moved. Now, in my heart of hearts, I know that if I found my child dead, I would touch them. I would. There's no way I couldn't. No way Mm -hmm. in hell. But I don't know. There was somebody with him, right? His friend Fleet. That mm-hmm. would that should have been Fleet's job to stop him. But not Don't, that he would have. But that's right. like, yeah. if I was with you, Holly, I would have to stop you from touching anybody. <laughs> or even like you can touch them. You can't take things away or move them. Right, right. Because if you say my fingerprints are on my child because I flew onto my child after finding them dead, there's no cop in the world that's going to be like, no, no, no. But like. Right, right. Yeah. But. So Mm -hmm. now would be a really great time for the policing in this case to get exponentially better, but it doesn't. The Ramseys are told, of course, that their house is now a crime scene and they must make arrangements to stay somewhere else. So John immediately calls for a private jet to take them to Atlanta. Okay. Which is a bad call. And an officer reminds him that, like, you can't leave the state right now. Your dead child is on your living room floor. Right. And just so, like which rich white folks. I know. They're like, okay, we have to leave. Yep. We'll just go to our other house. They don't even know her cause of death. You can't leave the state. So he agrees to stay. My cat is sneezing. But like just. John and Patsy provide hair and blood samples and agree to their initial interview with the police, which lasts for about two hours and involves a lot of Patsy screaming that she didn't do it. By 8 o'clock that evening, the coroner arrives, which seems a very long time, to take Jean Benet's body to the medical examiner, and investigators launch an extensive 10-day search of the Ramsey household. But again, that crime scene is ruined. And they still haven't talked to Bert. Nope. Mm -mm. He's at the White's house. On December 27th, Jean Benet's autopsy is carried out, and the results are released, like, right away. And it is grim, you guys. I have read the whole autopsy report. I have looked at the pictures so many times that I dream of this poor little girl occasionally. The autopsy revealed that Jean Benet had been killed by strangulation and skull fracture. The official cause of death was asphyxia by strangulation associated with the craniocerebral trauma. There was no evidence of conventional rape, although sexual assault could not be ruled out. Although no semen was found, there was evidence that there had been vaginal injury At the time of the autopsy, the pathologist recorded that it appeared her her vagina area had been wiped with a cloth. So they're illy. I don't, how, how'd you tell that? Yeah. Doesn't say there were fibers or anything. I don't know how they told that. But anyway, that's what it says. And it's perplexing. Her death is, of course, immediately ruled a homicide. The garrote that was made from a length of nylon cord and the broken handle of a paintbrush was tied around Jean Benet's neck and had been used to strangle her. Part of the bristle end of the paintbrush was found in a tub containing Patsy's art supplies. But the bottom third of it was never found, despite extensive searching of the house by police in subsequent days. So what's that all about? Hmm. Also, it should be said that the garrote caused, like, a deep trench in JonBenet's neck. It was obvious that she had been strangled because 
later on when people argue that this crime scene was staged, they say like, well, there was no marks. But there was. She was there was definitely very deep trenches on her neck. The autopsy also revealed that, quote, a vegetable or fruit material which may represent pineapple was found in her stomach and was said to be eaten just a few hours before her death, which is interesting because she went to bed way before her death. So here it is in clinical terms from the coroner, or the medical examiner, I'm sorry. Final diagnosis. One, ligature strangulation, circumferential ligature associated with ligature furrow of neck. Like I said, she has a trench in her neck. B, abrasions and petechial hemorrhages, which are signs of being strangled. Petechial hemorrhages, conjunctival surface of eye and skin of face. So that means that she has broken blood vessels on her face and in her eyes, which is associated with the death by strangling. Craniocerebral injuries, which means she has head injuries. A scalp contusion. There's a big giant injury on her scalp. Linear commuted fracture of side right skull. So she was hit hard enough in the head to fracture her skull. Linear pattern of contusions on right cerebral hemisphere. So more injuries on her head, subarachnoid and subdermal hemorrhage, small contusions, tips of temporal lobes, abrasion on right cheek, abrasion contusion posterior of right shoulder, abrasion on left lower back and posterior of left lower leg, abrasion and vascular congestion of vaginal mucosa, ligature of right wrist, and there was no toxicology findings. So cause of death of this six-year-old female is asphyxia by strangulation associated with craniocerebral trauma, and that's by Dr. John E. Meyer, pathologist. So she's been beaten in the head with, we don't know whatever, we never find out, and strangled to death with a paintbrush attached to a length of white nylon cord. There was a small heart drawn on her palm in red ink. Her white gap pajamas and Bloomingdale's underwear were stained with urine, and next to her body had been laid out a clean Barbie nightgown. She was put on top of her clean white blanket, which is why a lot of people speculate that this was done by somebody who cared about her. Hmm. Now, let's review the other strange evidence found at this crime scene before we try to connect the dots. There was a bowl of pineapple and milk laid out on the table that morning that no one could explain. Patsy said she had not given her that at the time of her death. She said that night they had not taken that out. She had not put that bowl on the table. She didn't know where it came from. Jean Benet was found with it in her stomach, so it's clear that she did eat some of it. The only fingerprints on it belonged to Burke. There was no bludgeoning weapon visible at the scene or blood spatter that would come from extensive head injuries. Where did that happen? So remember, this event fractured her skull, so somewhere she was hit really, really hard. The best they could do was say they found a flashlight on the countertop in there that could have been potentially used, but there was no evidence of her brain matter or blood or, or hair or anything like that on it. No one in the house had heard JonBenet scream. There was no sign of struggle in her room either, so it would appear that she went with her attacker willingly. Then there's the suitcase found in the basement that we talked about earlier. Upon examination, there are only two items in it, three, sorry, a semen-stained duvet cover and pillow sham and a copy of a Dr. Seuss book. Grim, I'd say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Several sources link the semen to John's older son, John Andrew, who was scheduled to meet them in Michigan the next day, uh, that day. And some people say they felt that they saw him uh, around the house that day. People are like, oh, no, I saw him there. Oh, there is that, like, so uncomfortable with that one? There is no um, airline evidence of that, though. They say that, like, he had tickets in his father's name that he did not honor because his father, like, sent word to him at the airport that something had happened. Okay. Also, I don't know if he ever lived there. I don't know if he was a teenager at one point in time and had to hide his covers because... 
Right. Shit happens when you're a boy teenager, I've been told. And he <laughs> hid it in his suitcase in the basement, and then somebody used it to prop themselves up and climb out a window. I don't know. I don't know what it is. The point is, none of us does. But that's how, that's that's that. Um, so, like, according to the intruder theory, which there are two major theories, which we'll get into later, they came in through the window that John had broken himself and, and like, used it as a step, the suitcase. Investigators said they did find a partial footprint outside of the window, even though they initially said they didn't. It was in the very, like, powdery snow. They never linked it to anybody's shoes or shoes they found anywhere, though. They just said they found it. They also found an unknown palm print on the door to the wine cellar where the body was found. What, what became of that? Some sources say it belonged to Melinda, his older daughter, which she was nowhere to be found in the area, so I don't know what that is. Then there are some sources that say it belonged to their housekeeper, which would have made some sense because she would have been in their house. Mm-hmm. But why was she down there? And then there's the ransom note. So investigators discovered that it had not only been written on paper from the house, but it had also been a second draft. There were impressions on the pad it had been written on for like the first draft of it too. And so someone clearly sat in that house and wrote that two and a half page note, which is not indicative of a kidnapping. You don't hang out there for 25 minutes while you write a really long ransom note. Right. If you're an intruder. Now, if you live in the house, that's different. Take your time. Hmm. Yeah. So more than a few people also find the handwriting of this ransom note to be very curiously similar to Patsy's. Though in court, experts would prove them wrong, and then people would argue those experts because handwriting analysis is not an exact science, and it devolves from there. But there are a lot of people that strongly believe that Patsy wrote that note. And then there's the content of the note. The amount of money it very specifically demanded, $118,000, was the exact amount of money John Ramsey received as his Christmas bonus that year. Hmm. So somebody knew they could get that much money. It's just too specific to be a coincidence. Uh, And it could have been anybody who saw a bank statement or knew what he got the year before. I mean, there's a lot of ways to slice that, but somebody knew. Then there's the language this note is written in. And if it seems familiar to any of you, things like, quote, if we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. Or, quote, don't try to go a brain, John. You're not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. That's because it is almost directly lifted from the Mel Gibson movie Ransom. Right, okay. Which had recently been released. While no experts could agree on the handwriting or the meaning of the signature, they could agree on the fact that a complete stranger probably didn't write this note. Mm -mm. Whoever committed this crime had to know a thing or two about the Ramses and their home. Honestly, it's not looking great for the Ramses at all right now. And this is what the police latch on to. They decide that the Ramses probably did it in one way or another, and then they don't investigate anything else. They just stop investigating. So naturally, at this point, the Ramses fly to Atlanta. Another terrible decision. This makes you look like the most guilty person the world has ever known. And they lawyer up real hard and stop talking to the police entirely. John told his friend Fleet White to stop talking to the police too and to get a lawyer. And Fleet was like, why would I do that? No, I'm not gonna do that. And then there is like their relationship kind of, suffered because of it. They're not really friends anymore because he continued to work with the police. Hmm. Not a good look. So authorities now have themselves divided neatly into two camps. And this is just a few days after the crime. So we're in like 
verging into New Year's Eve territory. They have her funeral service on, I believe, the 31st. They come back briefly, and then they leave. They don't want to talk to anybody. Right. So I don't blame them. Well, you have to talk to the police, and they don't. Oh, yeah. That's the thing. They also, like, go to Atlanta to sit next to John's ex-wife while she talks to the police, which they say is to support her but could also look kind of menacing. Okay. Yeah. So all there now there's two camps, as I said. All of the Boulder de- Police Department who believes the Ramseys in one way or another have killed their own child. And then a man named Lou Smith, who believes an intruder is to blame. Lou Smith was a detective who came out of retirement in early 1997 to assist the Boulder County District Attorney's Office with the case. So the DA tries to take it over. They grab it from them at this point in time, which is also suspect. In May of 1998, he presents his findings to the Boulder Police with other staff members of the DA's office, concluding that the evidence pointed away from the Ramseys. They were unable to challenge the police department's belief that the Ramseys were guilty. The DA's office sought to take control of the investigation. Due to the animosity between the police and the DA's office, who hated each other, and the pressure to obtain a conviction, Colorado Governor Roy Romer interceded and named Michael Kane as a special cro- prosecutor to initiate a grand jury. So the, the DA's office and the police in Boulder couldn't even agree on anything, so the governor had to step in. Two of the lead investigators in the case had opposing views, Lou Smith and a man named Steve Thomas, who both ultimately resigned because of this case. Smith believed so heartily that the investigation had been incompetently overlooked um, and on the intruder side of it, and that the um, the Ramses were being completely gaslighted and like just painted as horrible people, and so he resigned. And then Steve Thomas fully believed that the DA had interfered with their investigation and did not support the police in convicting the Ramses, and he couldn't live with that. He said, "You're letting these people go. You didn't support us. We knew what happened. This is the evidence." I have to quit my job, too. So now two people have also quit their job. Wow. A grand jury was convening beginning on September 15th, 1998, to consider indicting the Ramses for charges relating to the case. In 1999, the grand jury returned a true bill to charge the Ramses with placing a child at risk in a way that led her to death and with obstructing the investigation of a murder because they did basically everything to stand in the way of the police. They wouldn't talk to anybody. They didn't want to give up anything. It was very difficult. This is based on the probable cause standard applied in such a grand jury proceeding. But Boulder County District Attorney Alex Hunter did not prosecute them because he did not believe that they could meet the higher standard of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt that is required of a criminal conviction. So again, the DA is like, oh, they're fine. So then Mary Lacey, the Boulder County DA, um, just took over the whole investigation and took it out of the hands of the Boulder police on December 26th of 2002. In April of 2003, she agreed with a federal judge who sat on a liable case um, that evidence in the suit is more consistent with a theory of an intruder murder than John Bonet, uh, than John Bonet being um, killed by one of her family members. Okay. In December of 2003, forensic investigators extracted enough material from a mixed blood sample found on John Bonet's underwear. So they said they found DNA. They don't tell you what it is. Everybody says it's semen. The police say it was either spit or sweat. Okay. So as much as everybody wants to think it's semen, it probably wasn't. They also find DNA under her fingernails. The DNA belonged to an unknown male person and excluded DNA from every family member. The DNA was submitted to the FBI's combined DNA index system, the CODIS, 
a database containing more than 1.6 million DNA profiles, responsible for catching lots of people, but it didn't match a single profile in the database. In October of 2016, a report said that new forensic evidence analysis with more sensitive techniques revealed that the original DNA contained genetic markers from two individuals other than John Bonet. DNA is tricky, and it's not always right, and it's not always complete. Sometimes they say things like, it's a 98% match, and that 2% is like a good portion of the population. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It doesn't mean a whole lot. James Kohler, who was lead investigator for the DA's office, said that there were additional traces of male DNA found on the cord and paintbrush that the Boulder District Attorney Mary Lacey did not mention, and that there were six separate DNA samples belonging to unknown individuals that were found by the test. Former FBI profiler Candace DeLong believes that the DNA, having showed up identically in several different places on multiple surfaces, must belong to JonBenet's killer. Oh, but District Attorney Bob Grant, who has assisted the Boulder DA's office on the case for many, many years, also believes that the DNA evidence is significant, saying that any resolution of the case would have to explain how the DNA showed up on several pieces of JonBenet's clothing. So it all gets very complex from here on out. Forensic pathologists say that trace amounts can get into different places on clothing from anywhere. As we've said before, you can, someone can just blow on the wind and get onto you. It could have been anybody. She was in several locations for the past few days. We don't know when her last bath was. She was at church. She was at a party. She was at a friend's house. That could have been anything. There is no forensic evidence that shows this DNA is linked to a stranger murdering her. On July 9th of 2008, Boulder District Attorney's Office announced that as a result of the newly developed DNA sampling and testing techniques, the Ramsey family members were excluded as suspects of the case. Mary Lacey publicly exonerated the Ramseys, and this was a big fucking weird deal. People were like, what is happening? She made a huge formal apology to the Ramseys. On February um, 2nd, 2009, Boulder Police Chief Mark Beckner announced that Stan Garnett, the new Boulder County District Attorney, was turning the case back over to his agency and that his team would resume investigating it. Garnett found that the statute of limitations for the crimes identified in nineteen in the 1999 grand jury bill had expired and then did not pursue the review of the case against the Ramsey's wishes. In October of 2010, the Boulder police did reopen the cold case. New interviews were conducted following a fresh inquiry by a committee that included a state and federal investigator. Police were expected to use their latest DNA technology in their investigation, but there was no new information gleaned from those interviews. It was reported in September of 2016 that the investigation into Jean Benet's death continues to be an active homicide case per Boulder Police Chief Greg Testa. In 2015, Mr. Beckner disagreed with exonerating the Ramses and stated, quote, exonerating anyone based on a small piece of evidence that has not yet been proved to even be connected to the crime is absurd. He also stated that the unknown DNA from Jean Benet's clothing, quote, has got to be the focus of the investigation at this point in time, and that until anyone can prove otherwise. The suspect is the donator of that unknown DNA. I'm sorry, this is really weird because the quotes are weird. In 2016, Gordon Coombs, a former investigator for the Boulder County District Attorney's Office, was also questioned uh, of the total absolution of the Ramses, stating, quote, we all shed DNA all the time within our skin cells. It can be deposited anywhere at any time for any reason, reasons that are totally benign. To clear someone just on the premise of touch DNA, especially when you have a situation where the crime scene wasn't secure at the beginning, is really a stretch. 
Stephen E. Pitt, a forensic psychiatrist hired by Boulder authorities, went on to say Mary Lacey's public public exoneration of the Ramseys was a big slap in the face to Chief Beckner and the core group of detectives who had been working on this case for years. Yeah. And that's where we kind of are today. Nowhere. I hear people screaming at me right now because I've left a bunch of shit out. It's coming. But there are a great many theories out there, none of which are made more clear by the numerous false confessions that this case also endured. Alexis Valorant Reich, a 41-year-old elementary school teacher, was arrested in Bangkok, Thailand on August 15, 2006, when she falsely confessed to murdering Jean Benet. And if this sounds weird and unfamiliar to you, it is because she had previously been known as John Mark Carr uh, prior to coming out as a transgender woman. She claimed that she had been drugged, that she had drugged, sexually assaulted, and killed Jean Benet Ramsey, according to CNN. Quote, authorities said they did not find any evidence linking Reich to the crime scene. DNA totally cleared it. Also, there's evidence that um, she was not there at the time of the crime. She was in another state. Hmm. People confess for all kinds of reasons. In her confession, Reich had provided only basic facts that were publicly known and failed to provide any convincing details, so nothing new. Her claim was that, again, she had drugged, drugged John Bonet, um, and this was doubted because the autopsy said that there were no drugs in her body. So Could the pineapple have eaten away the drugs? Oh, man. I should have had you look that up. DNA samples that were taken from Reich did not match anything on John Bonet's body. So that's out. And and Reich is still, like, writing things that resemble weird fan fiction. Then mm. uh, there's another one, too. Gary Oliva, 54, is a convicted pedophile. And this is from uh, Rolling Stone, an article on, on this particular thing. He was serving a 10-year sentence in Colorado for possession of child pornography, but is up for parole in 2020. So he might be out now. I don't know. He said, quote, I never loved anyone like I did Jean Benet, and I let her slip and her head bashed in half, and I watched her die. Oliva wrote a letter to his former classmate, Michael Vale, saying, quote, it was an accident. Please believe me, she was not like other kids. In another letter to Vale, Oliva wrote, quote, Jean Benet completely changed me and removed all evil from me. Just one look at her beautiful face, her glowing beautiful skin, and her divine God body. I realized I was wrong to kill other kids. Yet by accident, she died, and it was my fault. Quote, my... This is now the friend is saying this. Quote, my suspicion when Gary called me late at night on December 26th in 1996. So that's when he started. Oh, sorry. My suspicions began. So he calls his friend on the night of Jean Benet's murder. Mm. And he says, quote, sobbing, I heard a little girl. I tried to get more information out of him, but the only thing he told me was that he was in Boulder, Colorado. And on December 27th, I read on the front page of my local newspaper Girl, six slain in Boulder, Colorado. And I immediately called the Boulder police and told them that I knew about Gary and what he had told me just days earlier. They never got back to me. Three months later, I called the police again to find out what was going on in its investigation of Gary. But instead, I was sent to a police answering machine set up for tips on the Jean Benet case. I left a message on the recorded line. And again, I never heard back from investigators. Back in 1996, Oliva was a registered sex offender whose listed address was not far from the Ramsey home, and he reportedly attended a candlelight vigil shortly after Jean Benet's murder. But despite receiving several tips from his friend, Boulder police didn't consider uh, Oliva a suspect until 2000 when he was arrested on unrelated charges and police found a photo of Jean Benet, a poem he'd written, Ode to Jean Benet, and a stun gun among his possessions. Now, the stun gun is important because the injury on Jean Benet's neck 
that we refer to in the autopsy is perfectly circular and it's purple. And a lot of people say that it looks like the injury caused by a stun gun, which would have made sense in the fact that she didn't make any sound because if they stun gunned her first, she would have been unconscious and then they would have moved her. Right. Is there further evidence that that's exactly what this injury is? No. But people speculate that. Several investigators, including Lou Smith, the one who really wants it to be an invasion, had theorized that a stun gun may have been used, as I just said. Boulder police investigators lost their interest in Oliva when new DNA testing methods failed to match his DNA to the crime scene evidence. But the department has since acknowledged that the crime scene was mishandled. In 2002, Lou Smith who has since passed away, told 48 Hours that he still considered Oliva a, a suspect. So after that, they just kind of let this guy go. Hmm. Well, but they can't hold him if they don't have any... No, they can't, but they could have investigated him more, and they didn't. Oh, okay. Because what they wanted was the Ramses to be guilty, and they just wanted their theory to be right. And I'm not saying that it wasn't. Right. It could have been. This guy sounds pretty solid, He sounds too. pretty good, too. Right. So aside from those two fun people. There are four other solid theories in circulation. The first is that Jean Bernier's brother, um, Burke, is to blame. Mm -hmm. Again, these are all alleged. These are all theories. None of these are solidified in any way, shape, or form. The theory is that, first of all, if we look back in Burke's history, he does have a history of aggressive behavior. Burke was a kid with a quick temper, at one point, Jean Benet was taken to the doctors because he hit her in the face with a golf club. Caused significant injury to her face. The moneymaker. Now, in a lot of reports, you will read that he turned around and hit her in the face. But in his version of it and other versions of it that the family relates, he hit her on his backswing because she was standing behind him. Okay. Which also sounds believable. Right. So I don't I mean, know. I'm sorry. When would this have been? When you they, I, there's, I don't remember the exact date. It's, it's, it's inconsequential. They were like little kids. So she oh, would have been like okay. four and he would have been like seven. Okay. This is a little kid injury. Right. But he has other troubling behavior. Burke also had a habit that they say started, as I mentioned, when, they, um, when Patsy was undergoing cancer treatment and they were relocated and stuff. He had a habit of smearing his feces on JonBenet's stuff, like the wall in her room, bed linens. Mm. He would just go in there and smear his shit around. There is evidence that he did it on that Christmas night. It's on a box of candy and on the inside on the candy and on her floor. Oh. Yeah. Now, that kind of behavior is indicative of a lot of things. Not all of them are aggressive. Not all of them mean he's going to murder somebody. But none of them mean he's doing great. No, all of them mean he needs therapy. Absolutely. And that is evidence that is left out of a lot of things. But it is there in police reports. So they speculate that Burke could have been not pleased with her preferential treatment, which I acknowledge early on. She did mm -hmm. seem to receive preferential treatment. One of two things happened. Either... He lured her down the stairs by saying, like, hey, come have a snack with me. And then he made the pineapple and milk, and he gave it to her, and then said, and grabbed a flashlight off the counter and said, hey, come down to the basement. And then... But the rest sounds insane to it have does. done. It does, but I'll get to that in a minute. Okay. So either he killed her on purpose, 
or they say he got angry because he has this very quick temper and they got into a fight. She was trying to take his snack from him. He was eating it. She was trying to pull it away from him and he hit her over the head with a flashlight that was on the kitchen counter. They also say that the injury mark on her neck could correspond with his model train set that he got for Christmas. It looks very much similar to the size of one of the tracks. Mm. So he could have slammed her head on the ground or something. But they say after that, he told his parents what happened, and his parents went on to stage a break-in and a mock kidnapping gone wrong. So that would mean that her parents took her into the basement, not knowing she wasn't dead yet, faked a strangulation, faked a sexual assault on their six-year-old daughter, tied her up, and then left her there until they found her themselves the next day. Wait, I've... Sorry, because there's so much information. I know. The sexual assault part, I thought that they couldn't confirm that there was any sexual assault. They can't confirm that she was raped or that there was actual, like... Penetration. Penetration by a human, like a penis or a human digit. Okay. But she did have injury to her vagina. Okay. But what is that? But, like, that could mean so many things. Exactly. And when I spoke to our friend, Dr. Lisa, about this, she said the same thing. Because that she's so small. So, like, even, like, it, she sent it just me two really good is articles, just, too. Like, it's not a hymen thing, either. It's just, like, an injury to the wall of her vagina, which okay. she could have been itchy or something. I don't. I don't know. I guess, but either, but it means that something was up there. It means that something was rifling around down there. Okay. Basically. And it could have been post-mortem, they say, or during it. Although I don't know how it could be post-mortem if there's any kind of bleeding, because you don't bleed post-mortem. And this is supposedly Uh a bruise and a little tear. Um, And that there was like a foreign substance down there or something. So they say that the parents staged this whole event, and then Patsy wrote the ransom note, too. And then called 911 that morning. So the whole thing is that they're covering up for Burke, which would also be why they, like, spirited him away quickly. And then after the event occurred, why he never, spoke, like, saw the public again. He was just locked away forever. Okay. That explains that. The next theory is that Patsy actually committed this crime herself after a bedwetting incident. Now, John Bonet is documented as a bedwetter, but I also talked to Dr. Lisa about this one because a lot of people say— as I mentioned before, that is indicative of sexual assault. It isn't always. Dr. Lisa said that bedwetting is a common thing even up until you're a teenager. It's not something people can control. It doesn't always happen because of a nefarious reason. It's just part of life. But they say that Patsy got infuriated because she was stressed out and John Bonet wet the bed again and she ended up getting too rough with her and causing the head injury. And then again, they staged the attack as a cover-up. Okay. It's weird to think that you flew into that kind of a rage after you kid, your kid peed right. the bed, especially as she had no documented history of violence or hitting her children or her children looking like they had been hurt in any way, shape, or form, but that's what some people think. But it's also insane to think that, like, they found their son came to them at, you know— it's it's just both both theories are still insane to think that 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 could be yeah. the case, you know. Then the third uh, family theory is that it was John Ramsey who had been molesting her for a lot of her life, and um, in an incident, 
killed her, and Patsy discovered this in the act, and then, because she didn't want it ever to be revealed to the world, helped them cover it up, which is tumultuous and awful. And there are complicated theories that do back and do not back this up. Again, we talk about the evidence of prior sexual assault. Between the ages of three and six, Jean Benet visited the pediatrician something like 33 times. Hmm. That's a lot of times. And everyone says, oh, well, she, you know, she must have been being sexually assaulted. She went once because of like glorified diaper rash. Okay, kids get bad rashes yeah. down there sometimes. And then, especially if she's competing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then one other time because of um, like repeated irritation down there and UTIs. And the doctor said that she got the repeated UTIs because of bubble baths. Now, okay. I had that same moment as a child. Mm hmm. I got, I mean, like, maybe this is TMI. I don't give a shit. I got a lot of UTIs when I was a little kid. The doctor played detective. I was like, listen, does she take a lot of baths with, like, soap, like, soap bubbles? And my mom was like, yeah. And they were like, you can't do that. That's going to cause, like, UTIs. That gets, that doesn't work well. I actually, I remember that being a thing. Yeah. Because I didn't really do that many bubble baths. I used to, and I got too many UTIs and had to stop. So that's a true story. That could have been what happened. That checks out. But a lot of people like to point to that as, well, she went to the doctor. How did this pediatrician not see it? They also get really, like, heated because they went to his house for visits. Like, this pediatrician was, like, an old guy whose office was in his house. Right. I'm like, well, my first obstetrician had his office in his house. People still do it. It happens. But they say that was record of being abused. Now, the other 30-some-odd visits were for sinus infections. And if any of you, or like things related to that, they're like bad breath, which is related to breathing with your mouth open mm-hmm. if you watch Ted Lasso, and um, sore throats and bronchitis and coughs, mm-hmm. they are all part and parcel. And if you have a respiratory kid who needs a nebulizer frequently, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You go to the doctor a lot, you have a lot of prescriptions, you have a lot of visits, you have to keep going back because they're like, well, if the cough's still here in three weeks, you got to come back. And a lot of times that happens a shit ton of times for the same illness. So to me, that also isn't a super giant red flag. And again, because she is competing in all these pageants. Yeah, she's exposed to anything. Well, her mom might be taking her to make sure that she's not snotty for like the pageant. That too. Yeah, you're totally right. So a lot of people point to these as clear indicators that she had been sexually abused and then murdered because of something related to it. And then I did... Have her parents explained the doctor visits? Do the doctors explain There's the doctors? There's a record of it, and the records just say exactly what I said. They're like, okay. she was had colds. Kids, okay. kids go to the doctors. Yeah. She got sick. We took her to the doctor. Maybe I was overreactive and took her too much, but I just took her because I thought she was sick. That's what all the explanations are. And frankly, okay. like, they track to me. But then the other theories are that there is an intruder. Now, before I get into that, A lot of people had visible access to her, first of all. Anybody could have seen her in one of these pageants or the video they're in from them. And they are like a fucking candy store for pedophiles. A lot of people also had access to her home because in 1994, the Ramseys were involved in something called the Boulder Holiday Homes Tour, wherein people could come and tour their home to look at their Christmas decorations. You mean 1996? No, it was okay. in 94. Okay. So this could have been, this This would have been a case of stalking if this person uh, saw her then. Okay. Um, I thought it was 96, but it was 94. 
I, I, I mean, like, in some of the interviews, they say that they did it again, but I can't find any, uh, any hard copy evidence of it. Right, because it didn't sound like they had— No, and when they interview the Ramses, they're like, someone could have hidden in our home. Right. And it's unclear as to if that is because they were in their home earlier that day or because it was a couple years ago and they knew how to get into the house. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of unclear. There is video of the Holiday Homes Tour from 1994. So I can tell you for a concrete fact that it did happen then. 1996, no video. But what that is is— you would pay admission to go see, Kate May does it too, I think, mm -hmm. people's Christmas decorations. But that Christmas would also mean- candlelight tour. Yes. We that, sell out every year. There you go. But that would also mean that th actual thousands of people were paraded on guided tours through the Ramsey's home mm -hmm. and could have made notes of any number of entrances, exits, or anything. They could have been stalking them. If this tour happened again in 1996, which again, I am unclear about if it did or not because there is so much conflicting- evidence, they could have just stayed in the house. Hmm. So there, there were people that had access to her, visible access to her, access to the home. Um, John Ramsey worked with a lot of people. He was very high up. He made a ton of money. People could have been pretty, you know, they, they could have not liked him, you know? So the intruder theory, this is like the formal um, listing of it. Police and prosecutors follow leads for intruder parties due to an, an identified boot mark. Like I said, there was a boot mark in the snow outside the window. An early person of interest included, and this is my least favorite one, neighbor Bill McReynolds, who played Santa Claus. They ended up being so distraught because they were indicated. And then the Ramses like said, oh yeah, it could have been him, which is awful. They like moved. He never played Santa again. It was really awful. Yeah, I mean, there was no way of coming back from that. No, he couldn't. Mm -hmm. He was just a pedophile in people's eyes from then on out. Um, they also indicated a former family housekeeper named Linda Hoffman Pugh, who they said they found her handprint on the door mm -hmm. downstairs. There, that's that's all that we have. But if she's a former housekeeper, she could have been in there. And then a man named Michael Helgoff, who this guy is very interesting too, died in an apparent suicide shortly after JonBenet's death. Mm -hmm. Hundreds of DNA tests were performed to find a match to the DNA recovered during her autopsy. I told you this is Lou Smith's baby was trying to prove that this happened. And he leaned heavily on the fact that there had been two windows that were left slightly open to allow electrical cords for the outside Christmas lights to pass through, pass through, plus a broken basement window and one unlocked door. And that was the one thing I forgot. There is an unlocked door that Burke also admitted to forgetting to lock. He was like, I feel like it was my fault because I didn't lock this door. You're nine. You shouldn't be responsible for that. Smith's theory was that someone entered the house through the broken basement window, and people criticize this because there's a cobweb intact on it. Mm, okay. Okay. And a steel grate that covered the window that had undisturbed cobwebs, and the foliage around the gate had been undisturbed. There's all kinds of evidence that it had just been sitting there like that for a long time. Anyway, he thinks it's that this person used a stun gun, took Javadet down for the, from the to the basement, did what he was going to do with her, and left the ransom note. And this is supported by an FBI agent who had been hired by the Ramsey family, because of course it was, believing that the Ramseys were innocent. Then Smith resigned from the investigation in 1998, five days after the grand jury was convened against the Ramseys. Stephen Singular, author of the book Presumed Guilty, an investigation of the JonBenet Ramsey case and the media and the culture of pornography, which is the longest title to anything ever, refers to the consultations with cybercrime specialists who believe that JonBenet, due to her beauty pageant experience, could have attracted the attention of child pornographers and pedophiles. People think that she was 
attempted to be sex trafficked. Some people think that they wanted to put her in that suitcase, mm-hmm. that they brought the suitcase in the home to stuff her into. There's no evidence of that, but that's just the theory. It was also determined that there had been more than 100 burglaries in the Ramsey's neighborhood in the months before Jean-Benet's murder. There were 38 registered sex offenders living within a two-mile radius of the Ramsey home. Which is so many. That's a shit ton. But also, some of those could just be like they peed in a park. That's very, very <laughs> true. Uh, and a lot of people say that this these theories should have been far more aggressively pursued, but they weren't because the cops really, really, really wanted it to have been the family. Because that fits all of their educational checkpoints. When a kid dies, it's almost always a family member that killed them. Mm. It's way less frequently a stranger. So then they have, I mentioned Gary Howard Oliva. That didn't really go anywhere. He was one of those registered sex offenders. And and because of the DNA analysis, they suspect that it was an unidentified male who committed this crime, the DNA they found in her underwear and under her nails. The district attorney's office investigated pedophiles indicated to the former Denver prosecutor to follow this theory. The Ramseys developed a relationship with Mary Lacey, the DA, who they also say um, was influenced by the Ramseys to do the things that she did, like completely exonerate them, going in patently against the Boulder Police Department. So yeah, they tested for touch DNA, all of this stuff. They think it could be a third party. So there's no concrete evidence to that either. And those are all the, like, actual theories. And there are some wild ones. Right. Which I had you look up. Mm-hmm. And we're almost done. <laughs> so please, please, please give us something that's maybe, like, a little entertaining before I sew this nonsense up. Sure. Okay. So, well, first, I have two questions. Sure, sure. Because, okay, so one thing I heard was that, um, and this, I can make sense of this myself, but one of the main pieces of evidence against the Ramses was that Pat uh, Patsy was in her same clothes that she was wearing the night before. Do you remember this in your research? So no, no. And there's like eight hundred thousand sources. Okay, so a lot of a lot of people are saying that like when the police came or whoever, maybe even the detective by that point or something, like she was in the same clothes that she would have been wearing the night before. And people have like said that, and maybe I don't know if John was as well. So they were like, why was she wearing the same clothes? But now just thinking of her as like this Southern lady and and how everything else went, she probably just put her clothes on from like just whatever. There's also quotes from her saying that Jean Benet went to bed in her turtleneck, which was then found in her bedroom. But then they found Jean Benet wearing her like white gap pajamas. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what Patsy was on that morning, but Yeah. Well, I don't know. Okay, so there's that. My other one was, I think it's interesting that the police didn't go down to the basement. No. So could they be involved? Maybe. And there are people that definitely think that. They think that it's a corrupt police department and they're covering for a wealthy family in the area. Mm. But then why would they suspect the family? No, but I wouldn't think, I don't think, if if to not think that it's the Ramseys, that the police know maybe who's in it. Oh, maybe. Because here's my other thing. Because so that movie Ransom came out that year. Yep. So like any crazy person could be like, oh, I want to write this ransom mm-hmm. note just like that if they're mimicking it. You know, yep. somebody that's not great at writing a ransom note but was like, I just watched this movie. They're, yep. they're not going to write a, a good ransom note. And let me tell you something. The handwriting looks like it could be a teacher. Mm. It's not like manic, crazy serial killer writing. They like took their time. And oh, yeah. It. No, it's like neatly written. Mm-hmm. Two and a half pages of neatly written 
I could see why they'd be like, that's somebody's mom wrote that. Yeah. Because it looks like somebody's mom wrote it. Yeah. I'm not here to gender handwriting, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Ugh. Weird. Yeah. It's very strange. And I will definitely post pictures of it. Now, I know the end of this got kind of gobbledygooky, but like, there is a reason for that. There is so much evidence and so many sources and so many articles and so Mm -hmm. many opinions and so many Reddit rabbit holes that the facts in this case are gone, basically. Yeah. Just lost time. Yeah. Okay. Give me some wild stuff and then I'll sew it up. Sure. So one is um, that that an animal attacked her (laughs) and... um, and they mostly are pointing to an owl. Like the staircase? Yeah. But, yeah, an owl or a bear. But then an I owl don't bear. know. I don't know how they, the owl or the bear would have, like, done the rest of it. So. <laughs> they staged a sexual assault. Yeah. <laughs> Together. Nice. The owl and owl the bear. bear. Yeah. Um, the other one is um, a satanic ritual. Um, All right. Well, that tracks so, with the ransom note. A lot of people believe that the Ramses were involved in a satanic pedophile ring, and probably or that anybody, with y- yeah, it's a very Pizzagate ish. Yeah. Um, and you could probably TikTok that whole thing. I'm sure. JonBenet Ramsey and Pizzagate, so you can get all that information. Yep. Oh, uh, Tom Cruise might have been in the area. Obviously. Um, he was either living in Boulder or just in the area at the time. And he was like, I'm going to kill a kid. Well, yeah, because he um, loves, you know, eyes wide shut, all this stuff. So he um, kidnapped her and brought her to the satanic pedophile ring and like in an yeah, eyes wide shut kind of scenario. Scientology. Yeah, got yes. it. Um, and then the best one of all oh. is... Katy Perry is actually Jean Benet Ramsey. Jean Benet is not dead. Of course uh, not. She was just kidnapped. She there. was just sleeping. And that's it. Um, the Illuminati have taken yeah. her. Um, in they they were in cohorts with um with the Ramses. Obviously. Uh, so they took her um and groomed her to become because because Jean Benet is so entrancing yeah. you know oh, yeah. she was she was great so they believe that they could uh form her into a pop star and be able to use her to like get their their whatever message they were trying to get out listen to the world. good on them because they really succeeded yeah she's um, doing a good job now here's the thing uh katie perry is six years older than uh fake news. than her so she would have been 12 at the time so it's pretty obviously not her um, but also, some people believe before they thought of Katy Perry, they thought it was Lady Gaga was the other person. Because people believe that they just came out of nowhere. But if you actually look at Katy yeah. Perry's history, she was doing things as a kid. And she was like a, a Christian pop star at first and then yep. morphed into this whole other life. But yeah. So, I mean, I maybe Lady Gaga, I don't know what she was doing Who knows? before she came out. Maybe she's JonBenet Ramsey. Probably not, though, because she's pretty, also pretty well documented. Yep, and, and there is a corpse, so. Yeah, there's a body, and those people are not dead. Who's yeah, I the mean, dead kid? Well, I mean, the Illuminati have a lot of money. They can make things happen. I'm sure there's a special effects person. Obviously. Yeah. Those, those are the, the things. Great. <laughs> so, in summation, because this is a really long episode, but we did it in one, so I'm pretty proud of us. I don't think we're ever going to get answers to this case. No, I don't think that we can. We can't. 
You know, okay, so this is reminding me of the Faith Hedgepeth. Thank you. Um, her case where Which we, we did had, just get an answer to. We just awesome. got an answer to, but that was that was rough with the evidence and who we yep. thought it was mm-hmm. and where it was really people were really driving it home one way. Yeah. And it was just a random ass yeah. person. Yeah. And it very well could be a random ass person. It could. It could. And here's the thing. I know that almost all of our listening audience is really mad at me right now. Because, and I am one of these people, I am 150% guilty. We all really bought that whole Burke scenario. Because it is the most reddited. There is details everywhere. There are conspiracy theories everywhere. His interview creeps people out. But I watched it, and I don't know that that's what I thought think anymore. Hmm. I don't not think it. I, I don't think that it's, I'm very vague right now, but I, I, I do agree it's still definitely possible. It's not off the table. It is not off the table at all. And it, it really like time-wise and evidence-wise, it lines up the best. I see that. I know that. And so does the possibility that like she was being fucked with by her father or something. Those things, I see them. I get it. They line up, but they line up about as good as the other evidence does. Like the owlbear. Okay, maybe not the owlbear, <laughs> but like it's just a narrative that was more widely elaborated on. Right, right. And because we looked at it and we said, this is a rich white girl who's in pageants, so I bet you her parents fucked with her. And maybe they did. Mm-hmm. I am not saying they didn't. I'm just saying that is where... Our mind went first. And our mind, you and I had this conversation. It went to distaste first, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, that little spoiled kid. Whatever. She was in pageants. Her parents are probably terrible. That is my first thought. I mean, I'll, I'll self-incriminate before anything else. That was my first thought. They're probably shitty people. She was in pageants looking like a fucking adult in a showgirl costume. I bet somebody right. was touching they're, her at home. They're entitled, so they just think they can— yeah, and she's hypersexualized, so somebody's probably doing something to her. Yeah. That is the connections a lot of us made. And I am not sure at this point that we are we should be making them. Mm-hmm. So one of the most interesting documentaries, and I didn't watch all of it, I only watched some of it, that is made on this case is called Casting Jean Benet. It is not so much a retelling of the crime as it is actors who are hired to play the Ramsey family in reenactments who are then interviewed about what they know of their character. And all they end up doing, a lot of them, is revealing things about themselves. So for instance, if you were someone who was cast to play Patsy, and then you say things like, well, I've known tragedy. I lost my child. You could never do this to your child. That's where these things went. They went deep into the people. And that's what this case is. It's kind of become a Rorschach test where what you think is more of a reflection of you than it is of the actual case. Mm -hmm. Because the evidence is just a big blanket of stuff. And you can see it however you want to see it, depending on what your life looks like and the angle that has been more heavily consumed by you in the media. So we'll never really know if what we're seeing is truth as much as we want to say we know what happened. 
we are making an assumption based on our experience. And that's why I think we'll never actually know what happened, barring a deathbed confession from a family member or something. So I'm really sorry, you guys. I know I didn't give you the answers you wanted. I know I didn't present to you the version of Jean Benet you wanted to see. But I— I don't know. It sounds—I would say that—I mean, I think most people would know that we weren't going to solve the case coming in. But I think that— we got a lot of information, and I think that people that have their favorite theory yeah. um, or, the, you know, whatever theory that they go towards, I actually don't think that they'd be taken away from and it. And I advise you, if you have a theory that you really are are feeling totally confident about, to, like, take a minute. I don't, I don't want you to doubt it, but I want you to look inward for a second. And go, okay, well, why do I believe this one the most? Mm-hmm. Is it based on facts? Or it based, is it based on the fact that I just think that sounds the most reasonable? Yeah. I mean, I think that after this, I, and obviously not really knowing too much, but I feel strongly that I don't have an idea. I don't either. And I went into it thinking I did. Mm-hmm. And now I don't think I know as much as I did. And I don't yeah. think I ever will. And I think that it is a, a miscarriage of justice on, like, every single level. Mm-hmm. Maybe against the Ramses, maybe for the Ramses, maybe I, I. The takeaway, which is what I said in the first two minutes of this podcast, is that a little girl lost her life. The end. I, I stop wanting to like make a different story or like you know create a soap opera out of it and just I don't know I don't know what the answer is because she does deserve justice and and. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that it's important. I mean, it, if the case is still open and yeah, they're still trying to mm-hmm. find it. So I think that it's, you know, for that side of it, I guess it's good that people are talking about it and yeah. trying to get the evidence out there and maybe something will come out. So I really hope so. Yeah. I hope so only for JonBenet too. Yeah. I don't know who was involved. I don't know who did what, but I hope for for the fact of like somebody's best jump rope friend. I know. Ooh. I just— Go back to that at the end. Mm -hmm. Go back to a six-year-old girl you know. Go back to your kid when they were six. That's what we're sad about. Right. That's the takeaway. So that's JonBenet. My goodness. Yeah, that one like tortured my soul for several weeks. Next week, let's talk about Santa Claus. (laughs) (laughs) I know that we have like our fiends that are like more torture. I know. Don't worry. There's there's plenty more where that came from. But um, I need a brain break next week. So we are going to talk about um, a little bit of a lighter holiday fair. And then our holiday special is on the 17th. That's going to be super fun. Yeah. Toast. That's good. Toast. I will literally only toast JonBenet. Yeah, let's toast JonBenet. That's it. Nobody else gets it. So I, I like, I can't even really do this one because there is no rhyme or reason or way for me to put myself in this victim's place. There just isn't. So I'll just say that if we were completely helpless to the evils of our world, we, we would, would be, be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. 
and join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. And that's what this case is. It's kind of become a Rorschach test where what you think is more of a reflection of you than it is of the actual case. 